You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. Pretty crazy, huh? They made him blacker. This image plays to the perception that a darker black man is a more dangerous black man. They're assuming that he's guilty. Darker is guiltier. Black is bad. Hold on, it's George. Hold on. And it's vile. Isn't your interpretation of the cover just as racist? I haven't seen such oh, journalist irresponsibility since Dateline stage that car room. explosion. Are you being racist? Of course. It's racially insensitive. But the real injustice is the way police officers view blacks in Los Angeles, even after the riots, even after the Christopher Commission. The LAPD culture has not changed. You have to understand that this is a city okay. where four white police went officers went down into the county court's records, found file after file on Detective Mark Furman. Guy's worse than I remembered. Actually sued the city. He's a plaintiff? Hang on, that's not the mind-blowing part. He sued the city basically claiming that his duties as an LAPD officer made him into a bigot. What? Serving as a cop gave him violent fantasies. Come on. He describes beating up and attacking black people. Okay, let me get this straight. You're saying that the homicide detective that discovered all the evidence on O.J. Simpson hates black people? The cop who found the glove at Rockingham. This is... This is a gift. Imagine. Imagine. That O.J. Simpson was set up by the cops because he was a black man. And because the LAPD has a systemic racism problem. Bob, there's a reporter from the New Yorker magazine here to see you. Is that on the schedule? No, he just showed up. Well, tell him it doesn't work that way. Tell him I'm very busy. Linda, I want to see him. Don't let him go. Thanks for taking that time to see me. Now, you're New York Magazine or New Yorker? New Yorker. New Yorker. Alan Dershowitz told me to look you up. Ah. 
I'm doing a piece on cash for trash stories. Witnesses selling their testimony. The O.J. Simpson trial seemed like no, a... No, 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 it's inconsequential. It's window dressing. It's not the best use of your time with me. It's the story I'm out here to cover. Well, I know it is, but wouldn't you rather ask me why a man like me would take a case like this? You might be surprised. I might be surprised if I'm surprised. Okay. Tell me. Because of its far-reaching implications. I've never seen anything like it. And I couldn't stand by and let it happen. Please. Let what happen exactly? The systematic railroading of O.J. Simpson by a racist LAPD because he is a black man. Wait, what? The LAPD history is a shameful history. And everybody knows it. It's no secret. And this cop, Mark Furman, who discovered everything, he's an admitted racist. Any evidence he touches is questionable. So I want to be clear. You're saying this policeman said about O.J. Simpson? Maybe. Maybe Mark Furman, maybe others in a conspiracy. Wait, okay, wait. So all the blood evidence, somehow these cops, a cabal of racist police officers, planted it from the murder scene to the Bronco to Rockingham? Who else could have? Take a step back. I mean, doesn't it seem odd that this glove just happened to be a Rockingham at the same time that Detective Furman just happened to find it? Uh, it isn't odd if Simpson dropped it after he climbed the wall to avoid being seen by the limo driver. Jeff, you look like a smart kid. Don't rush to judgment. We will show that it's impossible for a black man to get a fair shake with the LAPD. We will prove this. So you're going to say this case is all about race? Yes, because it is. I'm just simply shedding a light on it. Sweetie, what are you doing? Uh, nothing. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. No, Travis, come on. No, I can do it. Yeah, not with that, you can't. It's not plugged in. Well, it's still not safe. Here, use that. This isn't fun. Yeah, well, that way you'll hold on to your fingers. Come on, All of your Mom. fingers. In the dark, <laughs> I could see it was O.J. Simpson. And how would you describe his expression? O.J.'s face was like a mask of rage. I was terrified. I hope I don't have nightmares for the rest of my life. Shively's out. I'm not putting her on the stand. Marsha. She lied. She's your only eyewitness. She ties him to the crime. She lost all credibility. The jury won't believe her. The defense will portray her as a media whore, which she is. They'll say she just made it all up to score some quick money. It's just a sleazy news show. They paid her five grand. It's a slippery slope from hard copy to the National Enquirer to the Weekly World News. We need to set a tone. Is that what this is about? We've used witnesses before who did interviews for money. Gil, if we don't keep control, then the press can hijack all of it. We'll end up spending our time responding to them instead of focusing on things that matter. Come on, guys. We have all the aces. Let's hold the high ground. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, December 24, 2020. So I have been told this is our fifth study session on Jeffrey Tubin, Zoom bomber number one. His best selling book. The run of his life, the people versus OJ Simpson. We are picking up. Can you believe it? Christmas flipping Eve. And we are picking up on chapter seven, 
the race card. Oh, I cannot wait. So the audio segment that we heard at the beginning, this is our first time getting an actual sound clip from the FX series uh, that is based on this book, the run of his life that came out in 2016, huge hit. So that particular segment is from episode three. There are 10 episodes in the series. So that was from episode three, which is titled the dream team. So you, you, we opened with Christopher Darden, who at the time was not a part of the prosecution. Uh, but he goes to the newsstand. He sees the time magazine cover with the blackface OJ, and he doesn't know what to make of it. Uh, we pivot from that to Robert Shapiro, or excuse me, we pivot from that to Robert Shapiro, who's watching uh, television. And it's a montage of people talking about the time cover, which ends with Johnny Cochran, who is not a part of the dream team uh, at this time. Uh, he is the uh, senior OJ analyst, I think was the title he used where he would just go on television and talk about the case and different dimensions of racism, white supremacy, which you heard in the segment. From there, we hear Robert Shapiro finding out about racist Mark Furman uh, and then Jeffrey Tubin, the author of the book, who is also a consultant for the FX series, meets with Robert Shapiro. They talk about, wow, racism is going to be the key to your strategy, blah, blah, blah. Tubin publishes uh, and he does publish what you heard the article Cash for Trash about selling uh, testimony to the tabloids and all that, which is important. Uh, but he publishes after talking to Shapiro, he publishes publishes his article, an incendiary defense uh, for the New Yorker, which came out in July, 1994. I posted that online. If you want to check it out and kind of get a preview of where this chapter is going. Uh, and then that whole segment concludes with prosecuting attorney, Marsha Clark suspected racist. She's at home and you hear Jill Shively pop up on television doing an interview about, Oh, I saw that raging killer Negro rapist, OJ Simpson. Oh my goodness. He had just hacked them to death. And then you hear this long egalitarian spiel by Marsha Clark, who, by the way, even before we get to all that, you get to see her being a mom. So they get to drill in that sexism and in this toxic masculinity and patriarchal world with raping, killing niggers, uh, that Marsha Clark, a single mom, white woman battling toxic masculinity and sexism all the way, holding down her family by herself and fighting all these no count race baiting attorneys. They pivot to that. And on top of that, she's got to kick Jill Shively to the road, who definitely saw OJ run her off the road after he killed those white people. She's letting Jill Shively go because, hey, 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 we don't need trash. We don't need people who are selling their testimony. We have unsullied hands in prosecuting OJ. Get out of here with that. We will get to chapter seven, the race card. Context to White Supremacy, audio segment one. Chapter seven, the race card. The month after Simpson's arrest went better than Shapiro had any reason to expect. The team of experts he had gathered was already beginning a meticulous examination of the prosecution's case. The defense had eliminated the grand jury and in the prelim had forced many important government witnesses to commit themselves under oath to their version of events. The police detectives had been put on the defensive about their conduct on the night of the murders. 
Much public support for O.J. remained, although his poll numbers were dipping daily. So the news was, up to a point, good. Successful criminal defense attorneys permit themselves no illusions. And for all the good that came out of the prelim, the hearing forced Shapiro to face reality as well. Clark had concluded her presentation of the evidence to Judge Kennedy Powell with the first public airing of the government's blood evidence in the case. Since the first week when Colin Yamauchi did the initial DNA tests, LAPD scientists had continued refining their results. For the purposes of the hearing, Clark thought it best to offer testimony only about conventional testing of the blood. Such testing offers somewhat less refined results than the best DNA tests. But Clark knew the judge would admit it into evidence without an evidentiary hearing. According to the tests disclosed at the preliminary hearing, the blood drops to the left of the shoe prints at Bundy matched Simpson's, and that of only 0.43% of the population. In other words, 99.57% of the population could be excluded as sources of that blood. It was devastating evidence. DNA tests, which were pending, would surely further incriminate Simpson. Even with the clever half-steps he had taken so far, Shapiro could not win a simple jury referendum on whether his client had killed those two human beings. He knew, however, that he might win a referendum on a different subject. Say, the racism of the Los Angeles Police Department. The revelation that tabloid outlets had paid several prosecution witnesses for interviews led, indirectly, to my own involvement in the Simpson case. Around the time of the murders, I was completing a story for The New Yorker about Cash for Trash. My article focused almost entirely on how the investigation of Michael Jackson for sexual abuse of minors had been severely compromised because so many potential prosecution witnesses had been paid by the tabloids. I had a chance to add a few details about the tabloids' role in the early days of the Simpson case, specifically with regard to Jill Shively and the Ross Cutlery witnesses and my story appeared on newsstands on Tuesday, July 5th, 1994. Later that week, unbeknownst to me at the time, the editor of The New Yorker, Tina Brown, asked the photographer Richard Avedon to travel to Los Angeles to take pictures of the defense and prosecution teams in the Simpson case. He and Susan Mercendetti, an editor at The New Yorker who often works with Avedon, spent the bulk of that week negotiating with Shapiro and his colleagues about how and when the defense team photographs would be taken. The photo shoot of the prosecutors went off fairly smoothly, but dealing with Shapiro turned out to be a tense and frustrating experience for my colleagues. First, the session was on, then it was off. Some people were included in the picture, and then they were not. The problem, as Shapiro explained it to Susan, was that the makeup of the defense team was in flux. Though he did not say so at the time, the key issue was whether Johnny Cochran would be joining the team. In the end, Shapiro proposed a compromise to Avedon and Mercendetti. Shapiro could not produce the entire defense team for a photograph, but he could produce Shapiro. He would agree to sit for a solo portrait. He proposed this solution as if it had not been his hope all along. And Avedon ultimately did take Shapiro's photograph. 
Shapiro knew that the process leading up to the portrait had been bumpy, to say the least. So he made a peace offering to the New Yorker team. He and his wife would take Avedon and Mercendetti to dinner at Eclipse, a trendy West Hollywood restaurant. Mercendetti, who had given birth to a daughter just a couple of months before, wanted nothing more than to go home to Washington. But she agreed to go to dinner. At the restaurant, Shapiro was in his glory. Producers and agents paid court at the banquet. Shapiro basked. Avedon, in an expansive mood, felt compelled to share with the table the fact that Susan was a nursing mother. On learning this news, Shapiro rose theatrically from his seat and spoke to Bernard Upacum, the suave maitre d' of Eclipse. Moments later, Bernard reappeared with a package for Susan, a breast pump. Needless to say, Susan had not requested this gift, but she managed to mumble a stunned thank you. She spent the rest of the meal mortified by Shapiro's presumptuousness, however well-intentioned, and contemplating a departure from the business altogether. In any event, Tina Brown told me on Monday, July 11th, that Shapiro had told Susan he might, might, agree to be interviewed by me about the case. Tina said I should make plans to go to Los Angeles the next morning. I made an airplane reservation, but I doubted anything would come of it. It didn't sound like Shapiro had much of a commitment to Susan, and I worried that I would just be stuck out there with nothing to write. Tina had no patience for my agonizing. Look, she said, there's no story in New York. Just go. I went. I did have one possible lead. While I was still in New York, I had had a brief telephone conversation with Alan Dershowitz who had by then joined Simpson's defense team. Ten years earlier, I had taken Dershowitz's first-year criminal law class at Harvard Law School, and we had spoken occasionally in subsequent years. In the course of a rambling and unfocused talk, Dershowitz went on a lengthy tirade about one of the detectives involved in the case. Knowing that in my previous career as a prosecutor, I had been a junior member of the Iran-Contra Independent Counsel's staff, Dershowitz described the detective in question to me. He sounds like Oliver North, looks like Oliver North, and lies like Oliver North. I had thought little of the comment at the time, but reviewing my notes on the flight to California, I thought it might be worth pursuing the subject. When I arrived late Tuesday, I found out there had been no progress in my getting an audience with Shapiro. So on the morning of Wednesday, July 13th, I decided to follow up on what I had heard from Dershowitz. There was, I was sure, no news in the fact that Dershowitz thought ill of the detective. But if the detective really had a bad record, there was bound to be an official file. I began by calling the LAPD and asked if I could see the detective's disciplinary record. I was not allowed to see anything in his file, but I was told there had been no formal adjudications against him. In short, no help. So I thought of another tack. From my days as a prosecutor, I knew that law enforcement officials were often sued for violating the civil rights of people they encountered. Perhaps there had been judgments against the detective, I decided I would go look. But before I set out to find any records, I had to settle something. From my hotel room, I placed a call to David Kirkpatrick, a fact-checker from The New Yorker. I asked him to check the spelling of the name Dershowitz mentioned. 
I have it in my notes as F-U-R-M-A-N, but that looks wrong to me, I said. Kirkpatrick set me straight, F-U-H-R-M-A-N. Shortly after ten, I parked near the long, low Los Angeles County Courthouse and made my way inside. About halfway down the corridor that runs the length of the main floor, I found the room where all cases are indexed on microform. I sat down to see if Mark Furman had ever been sued. No, not exactly. But the file did indicate that on August 24, 1983, Furman himself had filed a lawsuit. And the defendant, curiously enough, was the City of Los Angeles Fire and Police Pension System. I showed the clerk the case number, C465544, and asked where I might find the paperwork. She told me that since it was so old, it would be in the closed files in the archives, across Hill Street. Following her directions, I found myself staring at an elevator door that seemed to have been planted by itself near the side of the street. I stepped aboard the elevator and saw that there was, of course, nowhere to go but down. I rode it to the bottom. There I discovered a ghostly subterranean Los Angeles, a network of cool, deserted corridors connecting the buildings above to one another. I followed the signs to the archives, which turned out to be housed in a vast, hangar-like chamber where everything, especially the employees, seemed to exist in a fluorescent haze. I filled out a form and then watched the clerk disappear into the endless stacks of forgotten papers. After less than ten minutes, she called my number and handed me a file about two inches thick. I took it to a table and began to study the contents. The case file amounted to a miniature autobiography of Mark Furman. Born February 5, 1952, he grew up in Washington State. A brother died of leukemia before Mark was born. Father a truck driver and carpenter. Parents divorced when he was seven. In 1970, Furman joined the Marines then served in Vietnam as a machine gunner. He thrived in the service until his last six months there. As Furman later explained to Dr. Ronald R. Kogler, a psychiatrist, he stopped enjoying his military service because there were these Mexicans and niggers, volunteers, and they would tell me they weren't going to do something. As a result of these problems in 1975, Furman left the Marines and went almost directly to the Los Angeles Police Academy. Furman excelled at the academy, finishing second in his class, and his career at the LAPD had a promising start. His early personnel ratings were high. One superior wrote, His progress is excellent, and with continued field experience, he would progress into an outstanding officer. But in 1977, Furman's assignment was changed to East L.A., and his evaluators began to show some reservations. He is enthusiastic and demonstrates a lot of initiative in making arrests, a superior wrote at the time. However, his overall production is unbalanced at this point because of the greater proportion of time spent trying to make the big arrest, Dr. Kogler wrote. After a while, he began to dislike his work especially the low-class people he was dealing with. He bragged about violence he used in subduing suspects, including chokeholds, 
and said he would break their hands or face or arms or legs if necessary. Furman was moved into the pursuit of street gangs in late 1977, and while his job ratings remained high, he reported that the strains of the job affected him. These people disgust me, and the public puts up with it, he told Dr. John Hotchman, another psychiatrist, referring to his gang work. Furman said that he was in a fight at least every other day, and that he had to be violent just to exist. In just one year, he said, he was involved in at least 25 altercations while on duty. They shoot little kids, and they shoot other people, he told Dr. Hotchman. We'd catch them and beat them, and we'd get sued or suspended. This job has damaged me mentally. I can't even go anywhere without a gun, Furman explained. I have this urge to kill people that upset me. The stress of police work took such a toll that in the early 1980s, Furman sought to leave the force. His lawyers asserted that in the course of his work, Furman sustained seriously disabling psychiatric symptomatology and as a result should receive a disability pension from the city. To get that pension, Furman waged a protracted legal battle. The extensive case file documenting his efforts, replete with detailed psychiatric evaluations of the officer, was paradoxical. In all of Furman's own briefs, he was portrayed as a dangerously unbalanced man. As one of them put it, Furman was substantially incapacitated for the performance of his regular and customary duties as a policeman. In the city's answers, however, he was called a competent officer albeit one involved in an elaborate ruse to win a pension. Dr. Hotchman observed, There is some suggestion here that the patient was trying to feign the presence of severe psychopathology. This suggests a conscious attempt to look bad and an exaggeration of problems which could be a cry for help and or overdramatization by a narcissistic, self-indulgent, emotionally unstable person who expects immediate attention and pity. In either case, whether Furman was a psychotic or a malingerer, the picture of him was an unattractive one. Furman lost his case and, as a result, remained on the force. As I studied the file, its implications were obvious. The Furman disability case had the potential to thrust the specter of Rodney King into the middle of the Simpson case. The officer depicted in this battle over a pension seemed the archetype of the bigoted, bullying L.A. cop. If Simpson's lawyers chose to use this file, and I wondered at the time whether they even knew about it, it could transform the case, which to that point had been regarded as largely apolitical. Would that change? Having seen Furman's file, I decided it was now all the more important that I speak to Shapiro. It turned out that Simpson's lawyers did know about Furman's disability case file. Several months after I located the documents, I learned how the defense had found out about them. The name Mark Furman rang a bell with Zvanko Pavlik, but he couldn't remember how. Bill Pavlik, as he is known, was born in Croatia in 1949. And after more than three decades in the United States, he still retained a slight residue of Central Europe in his speech. His family came to Cleveland in 1961 and to Los Angeles two years later, when Pavlik was 14. In 1974, when he was 25, Pavlik became an officer with the LAPD, 
Looking back, he regarded it as important that he was a little older than many other cops were when they joined the force. He felt it made him more independent, more trusting of his own judgments. Pavlik worked south-central L.A. for almost his entire career. Early on, he prospered, moving quickly up the ranks to detective. But his career stalled when he began speaking out against what he saw as the pervasive racism in the department. He investigated other cops, including those involved in the infamous 1988 raid on the apartments at 39th Street and Dalton Avenue, in which homes were trashed and residents terrorized. Eventually, Pavlik made a name for himself as an in-house critic, which is a difficult role in any police department and was a nearly impossible one in the LAPD. His profile is a fairly common one for whistleblowers, he is regarded as courageous and honorable by some, egocentric and bizarre by others. After the Rodney King beating in 1991, Pavlik began speaking out in public against the LAPD. And it then became clear that his days on the force were numbered. He quit after 18 years, in 1992, with a stress and asthma disability pension, telling a doctor he would rather go to the gulag than return to work. According to a doctor Pavlik consulted for his disability application, he said he had prior thoughts of homicide toward LAPD management. Pavlik later denied making that statement. In any case, after leaving the force, Pavlik hired himself out as a consultant to those with grievances against the LAPD. His work resembled that of a private investigator, but Pavlik ever prickly, did not want to register as a private eye and subject himself to any regulation by the state. So he did what he called biopsies of both criminal and civil cases, looking for lapses by the LAPD that his clients might exploit. Robert Shapiro had called Pavlik to do just that the day after he himself had been hired to work on the Simpson case. So Pavlik had watched the preliminary hearing with more than passing interest. Mark Furman piqued Pavlik's interest, but the ex-cop couldn't figure out why. Pavlik knew they had never been assigned together. They certainly weren't friends. But Furman did look familiar. Pavlik was still puzzling about the detective after the prelim concluded. How did he know Mark Furman? Then suddenly, the name came to him. Johnny Carson. Shortly before he left the force, Pavlik, like many LAPD officers, had moonlighted as a security guard. He had done some work for the host of The Tonight Show, and so Pavlik remembered had Mark Furman, as had Furman's boss, Ron Phillips. The Carson memory triggered another one in Pavlik. In the spring of 1993, Pavlik had done a bit of work for a civil lawyer named Robert Deutsch, in a case for a client, Joseph Britton. In 1988, Britton had robbed a man at an automatic teller machine where Furman and his partner had set up a stakeout. In the chase after the robbery, Britton was shot. He ultimately pleaded guilty to the robbery, but he later filed a civil suit alleging that the police, Furman and his partner, had used racial epithets in the course of the arrest and had placed a knife at Britton's feet to justify the shooting. In the course of pre-trial discovery in Britain's civil case, 
Deutsch had uncovered the matter of Furman v. City of Los Angeles Fire and Police Pension System, number C465544, the same case I had found in the archived files. A few days after he was hired in the Simpson case, Pavlik, through Deutsch, rediscovered the case file and mentioned it to his new boss, Robert Shapiro. On the day I discovered the Furman file, I had no appointment with Shapiro. I was not expected or, I imagine, much wanted. But I decided the best thing I could do at that moment was simply to arrive at Robert Shapiro's office. I drove from downtown L.A. to Century City. The directory in the lobby of Shapiro's office tower indicated his office was on the 19th floor. I went to the elevator and pressed the button. No response. I tried another elevator. Same thing. The floor had obviously been blocked off. I assumed this must have been because of Shapiro. I read about how inundated he was with callers. He must have decided that he would not admit anyone unless he first summoned them. I figured there was no way I could talk his secretary into letting me upstairs without an appointment, and I prepared to leave in disappointment. But since I was in the building anyway, I figured I would satisfy my curiosity about a rumor I had heard. I wandered over to the security guard and asked, Is it true that Ronald Reagan has his office here? Yes, this friendly fellow responded immediately, and then he volunteered the floor number. I figured I might as well push my luck, so I asked, The elevator seems to be giving me some trouble. How can you get up to 19? Reception is on 18, he said. Just go there, and they'll direct you. I took the elevator to 18 and looked around. There was a spiral staircase between floors. I put my head down and, trying to look like I belonged, hustled past the front desk and up the stairs one flight. It was a big building, but as it happened, Shapiro's office was right near the stairs. He was sitting at his desk. Susan Mercendetti had told me his secretary's name was Bonnie Barron. Hi, Bonnie, I said with perhaps excessive enthusiasm to the middle-aged woman outside Shapiro's office. I'm Jeff Tubin with The New Yorker, but I have to confess that I don't have a cake with me. In the course of courting Shapiro for the photo, Susan had sent a cake to his office as a joke. Susan told me she had been surprised by how enthusiastically it was received. Baron smiled, my new best friend. In a rather pathetic effort to justify my unannounced arrival, I had put a copy of my Cash for Trash article in an envelope on the theory that I could say I was merely delivering it to Shapiro, never mind that he hadn't asked for it and probably didn't want it. I told Baron, I have something for Bob and I thought I might drop it off for him. Shapiro looked out to see who was talking to his secretary. I thought I had one chance. Standing in the doorway, I introduced myself and said, I had a very interesting morning looking at Mark Furman's employment records. You saw those? Shapiro asked. Yeah, about how he hates blacks and all that. It's pretty interesting. Jesus, you're the only guy who's found those. Come in here and sit down. I did. Where did you say you were from? The New Yorker. The New Yorker? Yes, I answered. That's different from New York? he asked. I nodded. Son of a bitch. He pounded his fist into his palm. That Susan Mercendetti is the nicest woman. I wanted to do her a favor, so I talked to this guy from New York. I got them mixed up. 
I checked New York Magazine for the next several weeks, but never found anything that looked like it could have come from Shapiro. Well, anyway, I said, here I am. Shapiro was full of energy, excited. Unshaven, he was wearing a work shirt and blue jeans. His messy office was long and narrow, distinguished only by his stunning desk, which appeared to be a genuine Napoleonic antique, full of inlaid woods and brass ornamentation. I asked him what he made of the Furman records. There's worse stuff, too, he told me. This is a guy who used to wake up every day and say to his ex-wife, I'm going to kill some niggers this morning. He paused. You understand this stuff. I want to work with you on this. I asked what he thought Mark Furman meant for the Simpson defense effort. Just picture it, he said, growing more animated as he spoke. Here's a guy who's one of the cops coming on the scene early in the morning. They have the biggest case of their lives. But an hour later, you're told you're not in charge of the case. How's that going to make that guy feel? So now he's one of four detectives heading over to O.J.'s house. Suppose he's actually found two gloves at the murder scene. He transports one of them over to the house and then finds it back in that little alleyway where no one can see him. Discovering the glove would turn Furman into the hero of the case. This is a bad cop, Shapiro said a few moments later. This is a racist cop. I was stunned. The thought that Furman might have planted the glove at Rockingham had never occurred to me. But I immediately realized how clever the suggestion was as a defense tactic. It was what some lawyers call a judo defense, and that it seeks to turn the strength of the prosecution's case against the prosecution. The idea was to transform the gloves from strong evidence of Simpson's guilt, who else but Simpson could have been at both Nicole's house and his own that night, to evidence of a police conspiracy. If Furman had transported the glove, then the bloody gloves became, for the defense, harmless at worst, and exculpatory at best. I immediately realized that Shapiro's theory, while ingenious, was also monstrous. In a criminal trial, the defense has no burden of proof. So it looked like the defense would attempt to persuade a jury of Los Angeles citizens, largely through innuendo, that one of their own police officers, acting out of racial animus, had planted evidence to see an innocent man convicted of murder and potentially sent to the gas chamber. Trying to process all those thoughts, I briefly found myself at a loss for words. Shapiro, too, suddenly seemed to withdraw from the conversation. He picked up a stack of mail he had been reading, mostly letters to Simpson in jail, and for a moment I watched him read. Shapiro then tossed me a handwritten note from Larry King, requesting that Shapiro appear on his show. He writes me every day, Shapiro said. We had never discussed ground rules for our interview. Technically, since nothing had been said to the contrary, I could quote him directly. But I felt I owed him the right to clarify his understanding of the terms of our talk. I make it a point never to use the phrases off the record or on background with sources, because most people, including most journalists, don't really understand what those terms mean. So I asked, can I quote you by name? No, he said. That's too much like an interview. So it's okay if I say a member of the defense team, I said. Something like that. And then, simple as that, our conversation was over. It lasted no more than 15 minutes. Not only was I having trouble keeping up my end, but I realized I was, at that very moment, 
due in Culver City to conduct a radio debate about the propriety of tabloids paying for interviews. My adversary was the National Enquirer's Mike Walker, who would go on to play his own curious role in the Simpson story. We said our goodbyes, and Shapiro and I agreed to keep in touch. After my belated appearance on the radio show, I drove to the New Yorker's L.A. office to write up a draft of my article and fax it to the editors in New York. I spent the next day, Thursday, July 14th, conferring with other members of the defense team, polishing the story and filling in holes. That night, I took the TWA Red Eye home to New York. The in-flight movie was Naked Gun 33 and one-third, starring, among others, O.J. Simpson. Friday morning, back in my office to close the piece, I realized that one issue still gnawed at me. This would be, I realized, a very damaging story to write about someone. I had called the public affairs office of the LAPD and had been told that it would have no comment on any matter relating to the Simpson case. And no, I certainly could not interview Mark Furman. That bothered me. I called around the LAPD to try to find a phone number for Furman. It didn't take more than five minutes to locate it. I dialed. Furman, a man answered. Is this Mark Furman? I asked. Yes, he said. I figured this conversation would not last long, so I identified myself and got right to the point. I explained that I was working on a story that said the defense was planning to charge that Furman had planted the glove on Simpson's property. I asked him if he had planted the glove. Furman paused and then said, That's a ridiculous question. I found that answer curious. Indulging, perhaps, in a taste of over-dramatization, I thought of what Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein used to call non-denial denials. During Watergate, White House spokesmen like Ron Ziegler would answer reporters' questions by assailing the queries as preposterous, absurd, and ridiculous, but would not really address the underlying facts. So, following up, I asked Furman again, straight out, if he planted the glove. Of course it didn't happen. So much for Ron Ziegler. Furman said he couldn't talk anymore and hung up. My story appeared on Monday, July 18th. All through the editing process, the title had been Playing the Race Card. But at the last moment, someone at the New Yorker thought that was too similar to another headline in the issue. So mine was changed to An Incendiary Defense. I wrote that in a series of conversations the previous week, leading members of Simpson's defense team floated a new and provocative theory. Those conversations revealed that they planned to portray Mark Furman as a rogue cop who, rather than solving the crime, framed an innocent man. Though I summarized the defense hypothesis and explained its basis in the court records from Furman's pension case, I did not suggest that the theory was true. That is, that Furman did indeed plant the glove. And, of course, I included Furman's denial prominently. It is important to remember just how early in the case this was. Nicole and Goldman had been dead for just about a month. Indeed, I noted that for all its bravado last week, the defense has not foreclosed any option, including a claim that Simpson did kill his ex-wife and Goldman, but was suffering from some sort of insanity. Even a plea bargain remains a possibility.
The new strategy may simply be a form of desperation. The race card may be the only one in Simpson's hand. Was it plausible that Furman had planted the glove? It was, at that point, impossible to say. No one, not even the prosecutors, not the defense lawyers, and certainly not reporters like me, knew many details about the case. Few of the DNA tests had been completed. The gloves themselves had scarcely been examined. Certainly at this time, prosecutors did not know where or when this pair had been purchased, or by whom. In testimony at the preliminary hearing, the movements of police investigators, including Furman, in the early morning hours of June 13th, had only been hastily sketched. In retrospect, what mattered most about my story, as well as a similar item about Furman by Mark Miller that appeared in Newsweek the same week, was what they promised about how the case would unfold. The issue of race had, to this point, hovered around the edges of the case with the prosecutors, the press, and even the defense unwilling to acknowledge its explosive potential. Now it was out in the open. I wrote in my article, If race does become a significant factor in this case, if the case becomes transformed from a mere soap opera to a civil rights melodrama, that is, from the Menendez brothers writ large to Rodney King redux, then the stakes will change dramatically. At the time, I thought I might be overstating the case when I added, it appears that the case is about to enter a new phase, one with the potential to affect the city of Los Angeles as a whole, and not just one of its most famous residents. Robert Shapiro had a parochial, if accurate, reaction after his Furman as racist villain theory appeared in my story. On the day that issue of The New Yorker appeared, Shapiro called F. Lee Bailey in London and said, it's over. I won the case. Chapter 8 Horrible Human Event I had an early taste of what the reaction might be to my story. The New Yorker sent out copies to the wire services on Sunday night, July 17th, and it was the lead story on many newscasts around the nation. At 8 o'clock on Monday morning, Maury Pearl, the New Yorker's chief of public relations received an early morning call from public television's Charlie Rose, asking if I could be on his program that night. Similar requests came in all day. For me, the week passed in a haze of television talk shows and radio phoners. Maury's indefatigable staff computed that, based on Nielsen ratings, Approximately 170 million people heard a reference to the incendiary defense story in The New Yorker in the first two days after it was published. By far the most important experience for me came on Monday night, July 18th, when I traveled to Washington to be the first guest on that night's Larry King Live. King would come to occupy an unusual niche in the Simpson case. By the time of the trial, King had decided to devote the bulk of his program to the case, and even moved his base of operations to Los Angeles for long periods. I eventually made several dozen appearances on the show, and King's CNN studio on Sunset Boulevard came to resemble a sort of Hyde Park corner for the Simpson case. On any given day that I appeared, I was likely to find a defense lawyer, an expert witness, or some other witness or peripheral figure lingering in the makeup room. 
For me, a reporter who was actually covering the case, the visits amounted to priceless opportunities to chat with these people in a quiet and intimate setting. So many people involved with the case developed relationships with King that he became a quasi-participant himself. Robert Shapiro, though he never appeared on the show until the trial was over, became a friend of King's. So did Skip Taft, Simpson's business manager, who never even agreed to appear on the show. On the air, King always maintained a scrupulous nonpartisanship. His renowned even-handedness extended to his famously busy social life. During the trial, King simultaneously dated Joellen Demetrius, the defense team's jury consultant, and Suzanne Childs, Gil Garcetti's director of communications. On July 18, 1994, King started his show this way. The charge is simple and stunning, and it's already touched off a fresh round of fierce debate in the O.J. Simpson case. The claim from the defense, made public today through a pair of respected magazines, is this. O.J. was framed, set up as a murderer by a racist cop who planted one of the famous bloody gloves at the Simpson mansion. After the introduction, King turned to me and asked, How did you get the story? I got the story by being tipped off by the defense to go look in the court records, and I burrowed down two stories in the archives of the L.A. Superior Court and looked in an index under Mark Furman's name and found a case called Furman versus the City of Los Angeles. You were in L.A.? King asked. Yeah. The tip came from the defense? I answered, tip came from the defense. The interview proceeded for the remainder of the hour and I never gave a second thought to my answers until about a week later. At that point, I checked in with Dershowitz, whose vague tirade had led me to look at the court records in the first place. I had no special agenda with him, but rather called to ask what was up. Bob is very pissed at you, Dershowitz said. Why? Because you said on Larry King that we had given you the records. I don't think I said anything like that. It's not true. No, Dershowitz continued confidently. We've reviewed the transcript, and that's what you said. Bob is very pissed. We've reviewed the transcript, I thought. They've got a client looking at the gas chamber, and they're reviewing transcripts of Larry King live? I mumbled a vague dissent and steered the conversation in another direction. Much later, when I had a chance to look at the transcript, I came to believe that Shapiro did have a point, although not the one Dershowitz had raised. I never said on Larry King that the defense gave me the court records, but I did say that the defense tipped me off to their existence. That was a mistake. They had only spoken vaguely about Furman. I had sought out the records on my own. Still, I wondered, why did Shapiro care? He had gotten his point across. Why was he upset? Robert Shapiro always wanted to be liked. In the eighth grade of his public school in Los Angeles, he and his friend, Joel Siegel, now the lavishly mustached and preternaturally cheerful entertainment reporter for ABC's Good Morning America, had an experience they still talked about 40 years later. A clique that called itself the Idols was having a meeting one day, and neither Shapiro nor Siegel was invited. So they just hung around together and moped until the meeting ended. The slight festered. It was as if from that day forward, Bob Shapiro, 
like an updated Scarlet O'Hara, made a vow. With God as his witness, he would never be unpopular again. And he never was. He was born in Plainfield, New Jersey, in 1942, and the family moved to Los Angeles a year later, an advance guard in the great Jewish migration to West Los Angeles that followed World War II. His mother was a housewife, and his father did a lot of things, drove a lunch wagon, worked in a factory. But Marty Shapiro's real passion was playing the piano in a small band that did gigs at bar mitzvahs and weddings around the West Side. An only child, much loved by his parents and his grandparents, who lived downstairs in their apartment building, Bob sought early on never to disappoint them, and he rarely has. By the time he arrived at UCLA, at the dawn of the 60s, Shapiro had a showman's moxie and a taste for action. His taste for the high life earned him the nickname Trini, after the stylish singer Trini Lopez, and fellow students recall his big hair and powder-blue polyester suit with zero lapels. He was always a joiner, first of Zeta Beta Tau, a Jewish fraternity with a rowdier reputation than the stereotypes suggest, but also of a campus booster organization called the Kelps. Resplendent in their blue and yellow caps, the Kelps didn't do a lot more than cheer for the Bruins at football games, but they were distinctive at UCLA nonetheless. At a time when campus life was rigidly, if unofficially, segregated by race and religion, the Kelps were a diverse group. This appealed to Bob Shapiro, who collected friends promiscuously and who, decades later, would still attend Kelp reunions. Shapiro went to law school because, well, the frat practically went en masse. Smart and a quick study, Shapiro thrived at Loyola Law School in Los Angeles, even though he went through a quick marriage and annulment while there. He was so nervous about California's notoriously difficult bar exam that he compulsively tore out his eyebrows. But he passed on his first try and began work as a deputy district attorney in the relative backwater of Torrance. Shapiro spent three years as a prosecutor, a successful if unremarkable tenure, before he caught the eye of the man who would change his life. The way he found his ticket out of Torrance said a good deal about both Shapiro and where he was going. The criminal defense lawyer, Harry Weiss, overwhelmed with work, had hired one junior associate, Peter Necht, and he needed another one in 1972. Around this time, Weiss asked a young lawyer named Johnny Cochran to join him. Cochran demurred and gave Weiss a revealing explanation. I don't want to work for Harry Weiss, Cochran said. I want to be Harry Weiss. Weiss had also seen Robert Shapiro in action and found the young lawyer presentable and charming, as he later recalled. But something Necht told Weiss about Shapiro really stuck in his mind. You know, Necht told his boss, Shapiro is the only deputy DA I know who drives a Bentley. It was, to be sure, only a used Bentley, and Shapiro had no great fortune in those days, but it was all Weiss needed to hear. In his current entry in Who's Who, Robert Shapiro lists his occupation during the period of 1972 to 1987 this way. Soul Practice, L.A. 
In fact, during most of this period, Shapiro was Harry Weiss's associate. And during all of it, in an informal sense, he was Weiss's partner. But after Shapiro became famous in the 1990s, he found it convenient to minimize and then consign to oblivion their relationship. The Weiss name and the Weiss style did not comport with Shapiro's later pretensions. Once, during a break in the Simpson trial, I made the mistake of mentioning to Shapiro that I had just met Harry Weiss. Shapiro looked at me as if he had never before heard the name. But for fifteen years, the formative period of his professional life, Bob Shapiro was Harry Weiss's protege. And that fancy Napoleonic desk Shapiro sat behind in Century City? A gift from Harry. At the age of eighty, Harry Weiss, bearing his trademark monocle and two-tone shoes, remains a familiar figure along the corridors of the Los Angeles Criminal Courts building. He works every day, just as he has since he was four years old and a child star in vaudeville. He had six sisters, and they traveled as a family around the Midwest on the Orpheum Circuit, the largest and most prestigious network of vaudeville theaters. As a four- and five-year-old in the years around 1920, Harry would close the act by demonstrating the now-lost art of recitation. These were monologues, anything ranging from the Gettysburg Address to soliloquies from Hamlet, addressed directly to the audience. I used to stop the show, Weiss boasted, three-quarters of a century later. The Weiss Act ended with the decline of vaudeville and the advent of child labor laws in the 20s, and the family moved to Los Angeles in 1929. Harry became a lawyer in 1940 and never let the skills honed on stage go to waste. From the beginning, long before the era of celebrity defense attorneys, there was something rakish and theatrical about Weiss's style of practice. In a way, Weiss's law business reflected his roots in vaudeville. More mass than class, just shy of total respectability. He had his share of famous clients, Peter Fonda in a marijuana case, and John Lennon in an immigration dispute. But mostly Weiss believed in volume. There was a saying, every hooker in Hollywood has Harry's card. The 70s, the heyday of Shapiro's association with Weiss, were boom years for their law practice. They shared a penthouse suite at 8600 Sunset Boulevard, which boasted a private swimming pool to go with the palatial offices for Weiss, Shapiro, and Necht. Harry always began his workday the same way, with a conference call at 7 in the morning to go over the day's court appearances. This was no simple matter, because at the time, Harry Weiss may have had the biggest criminal law practice in the United States. In an office that never had more than half a dozen lawyers who appeared in court, there might be a hundred appearances to be handled in courthouses that were sometimes twenty miles from one another. Weiss provided chauffeurs for his top lawyers to help them make their rounds. Shapiro, for a time, hired his own father to drive for him. The morning conference calls would feature a rotating cast of characters, but there were four regulars. Harry Weiss, Shapiro, Necht, and Sammy Weiss, Harry's nephew. Sammy's surname was originally green, but he changed it to Weiss to bathe in Harry's reflected glow. 
Both Sammy Weiss and Peter Necht, who drove a Ferrari and dated starlets, had active social lives that made the early morning phone calls an unwelcome chore. Are we all here? Harry would begin. Sammy Weiss at this point might reply with a slight groan. Sammy, the senior Weiss would ask. What? Sammy, what? You been out again, Sammy? Out dancing or whatever? Harry would continue at deafening volume. This is what you have to do. You go get an enema. You listening? Leave me alone, Harry, Sammy would mumble. Listen to me, Sammy, Harry would shoot back. Mae West told me that's why she looks so good. She's 76 years old. She gets enemas. You should, too. After a little more in this vein, it was usually Shapiro, the most level-headed member of the group, who would interrupt to suggest that Harry move on to the case assignments, and so another day on the circuit would begin. Mostly, Weiss and Shapiro cut deals for their clients. This was imperative, given the number of clients they had to service. But it also reflected the nature of their cases and the personalities of the lawyers. In the mid-1970s, the police in Los Angeles still arrested large numbers of people for so-called victimless crimes, prostitution, drug usage, and some consensual sex offenses. The firm specialized in the speedy and painless resolution of these matters. Weiss, in particular, always had many clients in Los Angeles's gay community, and in the days when Shapiro worked with him, the police were still routinely arresting men for having sex with one another. According to Weiss, Bob handled many of these cases. Vagludes, we called them. The cops always had these guys dead bang, and no one ever wanted to go to trial. In those days, the men couldn't stand the embarrassment of fighting it in public. And anyway, judges never came down too hard on them. So you had to make deals, and Bob made deals. That's the way you've got to do it. He learned... Deal-making suited Shapiro's temperament. He has an unusual quality for a successful lawyer, a strong aversion to conflict. Plea bargains please him. Both sides win. He is, to be sure, an effective trial attorney, but the area of the law where he truly excels is the cultivation of clients, a skill he honed from his earliest days with Weiss. Shapiro always had ambitions that went beyond the profitable, if low-prestige, Harry Weiss assembly line. He married a beautiful model, Lionel Thomas, in 1970. They had no children for a decade, a period that Shapiro spent developing the social contacts that later blossomed into law clients. He and Lionel had lunch almost every Sunday at the Beverly Hills Hotel, with one high-powered friend or another. One of them was Dale Gribeau, a personal injury lawyer. Gribeau introduced Shapiro to Dennis Gilbert, then a successful insurance salesman. In time, Gilbert became one of the biggest agents in professional baseball. When, as sometimes happened, Gilbert's clients were arrested, he referred them to Shapiro, who became something like house counsel to ball players in trouble. A group that came to include Jose Canseco, gun possession, Daryl Strawberry, tax evasion, and Vince Coleman throwing a firecracker at a group of fans. There was a pattern to many of Shapiro's big cases. The facts were usually undisputed. The only issue was punishment. That is, how a bargain could be structured with the prosecutor and judge. This was no secret. 
On the day he was retained to represent Christian Brando, Marlon's son, for murdering his half-sister's lover, Shapiro told the Los Angeles Times that he would meet with prosecutors and try to resolve the case without a trial. Many lawyers would view such a statement as a pointless surrender of bargaining power, but Shapiro had great confidence in his ability to cut a deal. There was another pattern, too, in the celebrity cases. Shapiro cleverly treated these clients as loss leaders, charging them little or nothing in fees, a practice that did not hurt in attracting even more celebrity clients. And, of course, in drawing the lesser-known souls whom Shapiro would make pay through the nose. The quest for clients was never far from Shapiro's thoughts. When the Simpson defense team pulled the ludicrous stunt of establishing an 800 number for tips to help them identify the real killer, Shapiro, quite naturally, gave callers the option of pressing four if they wanted to retain his services. Embarrassed by the public attention to this feature, Shapiro quickly had it removed, and the number itself was shut down a little while later. Not surprisingly, the 800 number provided no useful information. Shapiro cut so many deals so successfully, the celebrities he represented almost never went to jail, that it contributed to an impression that he didn't know how to try a case. It was true that Shapiro did not relish that side of the job. For example, he hated having to visit his clients in jail. This became a problem in a difficult federal narcotics trial Shapiro conducted in 1989. His client, George Guzman, who had been stopped in a car that contained cocaine, complained bitterly that Shapiro never came to see him. Guzman was even more offended that Shapiro had instructed him not to speak to him in court. Yet when the time came for summations in the trial, Shapiro became so swept away by the emotion of the moment that he embraced his client in front of the jury and shouted, This man is innocent! The theatrics drew an astonished rebuke from the judge, but that was nothing compared to Guzman's surprise. The prisoner recoiled so quickly that he threw out a muscle in his back. But he never complained. The jury acquitted him. Many of Shapiro's cases attracted intense media interest, and Shapiro came to fancy himself an expert on dealing with reporters. In January 1993, more than a year before the murders on Bundy Drive, Shapiro wrote a casually revealing article in The Champion, a trade publication for criminal defense lawyers, entitled Using the Media to Your Advantage. It offered a step-by-step -step guide for attorneys handling high-profile cases. The article was full of sensible advice. Be truthful. Be courteous. Be prompt. And yet it was written with profound ignorance about the larger implications of what he had to say. In some respects, Shapiro figured out clever ways to deal with the frenzy generated by the media in big cases. His advice was cynical, but probably justified under the circumstances. For example, I tell the reporters in advance that I will be making a statement at the end of the day, and I direct them to an area outside the courthouse. I prefer a lawn with trees or some other attractive background. The most important lead story on an hour newscast allots only 15 or 20 seconds for a statement from an interview. These sound bites must be concise and easily understood. Pick and choose the questions you want to answer. You do not have to be concerned with whether the answer precisely addresses the question, since only the answer will be aired. In dealing with all members of the press, 
avoid cliches. Referring to a case as a tragedy or to a client as being framed does not convey a thoughtful message. To describe an unfortunate death situation, I use the term a horrible human event. Shapiro practiced what he preached. On June 11, 1990, when he took over as counsel for Christian Brando, the third paragraph of the Los Angeles Times story read, It's a horrible human event, Shapiro said of the fatal shooting last month of Dag Drawlett. On close inspection, the calculated sincerity of the Shapiro method certainly may look a little smarmy, but there was little harm in it for a case about a Hollywood peccadillo. Yet Shapiro learned at his peril that the Simpson case was different, because the subject of race is different. In his conversations with me and Newsweek's Mark Miller, Shapiro had raised the subject in American life that is least amenable to compromise and deal-making. No lawn with trees or some other attractive background could help him here. Shapiro was suddenly out of his league, and he knew it. That was why he was mad at me. Still, Shapiro's irritation with me amounted to little more than a minor annoyance. Fundamentally, he was having the time of his life. He did not give interviews, but he was happy to be courted by the American media royalty. It wasn't just Larry King who wrote him every day. ABC's Barbara Walters appeared to pay homage, as did CBS's Connie Chung. For the moment, Shapiro played coy. There would be no interviews, not least because he didn't want to be asked on camera whether he thought Simpson was guilty. He was, however, happy to pose for photographs by Avedon for The New Yorker, by Annie Leibovitz for Vanity Fair, and in his boxing trunks for People. So Shapiro took Walters and Chung to dinner, and they agreed to stay in touch. It was a heady time, and Shapiro loved the action. One day, shortly after he was hired, he was waxing nostalgic on the telephone with his old friend, Joel Siegel. Siegel was urging Shaps, Bob's junior high school nickname, to keep a diary of his experiences in the Simpson case. Just be purely subjective about your feelings about it, and at the end of the trial, you'll have a book, Siegel said. You know, we're not getting any younger, all of us, and this book will be around forever. Shapiro demurred for the moment, even if he enjoyed the attention. In the middle of the conversation, Shapiro asked Siegel if he could put him on hold. He had to take another call. In a moment, Shapiro was back. Joel, Shapiro said, say hello to O.J. Simpson. Siegel unexpectedly found himself on a conference call with America's most famous murder defendant and his lawyer. Simpson knew Siegel worked in the media, of course, and the defendant started venting his anger at what he regarded as the unfair treatment he had received in the press. Why don't they talk to my friends, Simpson said. I'm not a wife-beater. Shapiro said he wanted to raise another subject. They had made great progress in hiring legal and scientific experts, but there was still the matter of a trial lawyer. Shapiro was looking at some people they might want to bring in to help at the trial. There were three main candidates. Astonished at what he was hearing, Siegel could not resist sharing his good fortune. Without telling Shapiro, or needless to say Simpson, Siegel patched in Roger Kosek, another old chum of his and Shapiro's from Los Angeles. In this bizarre four-way phone call, O.J. Simpson evaluated the lawyers who might defend him in court. 
Simpson didn't like one of the candidates, which was actually a team, Leslie Abramson and Gerald Chaliff. Simpson didn't know Chaliff, a well-regarded Santa Monica-based defense attorney who had represented Angelo Buono in the Hillside Stranger case. It was Abramson who was the problem. Simpson just didn't cotton to the frizzy-haired counsel to Eric Menendez. The second possibility was Johnny Cochran. Simpson liked Cochran well enough, and he wasn't willing to dismiss him as a possibility. But the third candidate had become Simpson's favorite. O.J. had seen Jerry Spence on television for years. Dressed in his trademark cowboy hats and fringed leather jackets, the sage of Jackson Hole, Wyoming, had deployed his corn-pone charm for clients as diverse as Karen Silkwood and Amel DeMarcos. O.J. thought he was great. Get me Jerry Spence, the defendant said. Context of White Supremacy Man, we will be picking up on Chapter 9. Mr. Cochran wants to know. First audio segment done. If you have questions, observations to share, the number 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate the number again 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate email is untiljustice at gmail.com uh, let's see. So much to share. I can't even believe Effie Bailey was on the program yesterday. Isn't that wacky? Like I would have said something about that at the beginning, but I already had the audio and everything constructed before Mr. Bailey visited with us yesterday evening. So if you missed that, there wasn't a lot of, you know, advance notice because I hadn't really thought of it. I'm very far in advance. It just came to mind like white guests only. Yes, but I think uh, some white people were involved with the so-called dream team. So that was kind of a hoot, unexpected hoot, no less, uh, to get two OJ days this week and to have one of them be F. Lee Bailey in the archive. Check it out. So let's see. Uh, Investor wrote in. Uh, greetings Gus fascinating interview with F. Lee Bailey what a great get concur F. Lee Bailey was also involved in a murder case with interesting parallels to OJ Dr. Sam Shepard a prominent neurosurgeon in Cleveland Ohio Red called in in Ohio yesterday Uh, Mr. Bailey was like what part of Ohio really where Cleveland Columbus Cincinnati he wanted to be real specific I might have to track you down we have investigators let me get an address anyway uh, Dr. Sam Shepard Cleveland Ohio was convicted in the 1950s of bludgeoning to death his beautiful wife in their home their young son was also home at the time heard that before allegations of infidelity on the doctor's part were made no murder weapon. Prior to the trial, the Cleveland newspapers blatantly convicted him in the press. The jury was not sequestered. Bailey got him acquitted on appeal after being in jail for 10 years. 
Litigation surrounding the case went on for decades after the acquittal and involved blood and DNA analysis, not available during the initial trial. Even after acquittal, I think most Clevelanders who were adults at that time thought he did it. It would be interesting to hear if Mr. Bailey also thinks Dr. Sam was innocent. I think he has spoken about that case so much because that's like the fugitives and, you know, that was case of the century before OJ. But I think he's talked about that uh, and his thoughts on whether or not Dr. Shepard was uh, innocent or guilty. In fact, I think I've heard him talk about it. I think he said uh, innocent unless I'm incorrect. I think he said innocent. We'll double check. Continuing chapter seven, the race card. Furman, he bragged about violence he used in subduing suspects, including chokeholds, and said he would break their hands or face or arms or legs if necessary. I wonder if he had a nigger knocker. Remember that, Norm Stamper? My recollection is that the media diminished and rationalized anything that came out negatively about this racist, and much of what was known was not released to the public at the time. We will definitely get to that. Number two, Tubin, the theory that Furman might have planted the glove at Rockingham had never occurred to me. I recall that at the time, most of the media, white people, of course, characterized any theory that Mark Furman could have planted the glove to be utterly preposterous. That is what I have thought for my whole life. Given a more complete picture of this race soldier in particular and the LAPD in general, the possibility that Furman could have planted evidence seems entirely plausible by any objective analysis. He had opportunity and motive. Tubin's characterization this uh, excuse me, Tubin's characterizing this theory as monstrous, given the context, seems like an act of white supremacy racism. Chapter 8. Horrible human event. Number 1. Shapiro Campus Booster Organization, the Kelps. I was curious about the Kelps and thus went off on a sidebar. The Kelps was UCLA's first religious and ethnically diverse integrated men's group. It existed from 1948 to 1970. It stands for Knights, Earls, Lloyds, Potentates, Sultans. It was formed at the urging of coaches John Wooden, legendary basketball coach, and Red Saunders, legendary UCLA football coach who died of a heart attack in the company of a prostitute. Sexual perversion, so Jeff Tubinish. Uh, the elite spirit group was composed of the big men on campus, star athletes, student body presidents, fraternity presidents. Black male Rafer Johnson, track and field Olympic gold medalist who recently died at 86 from COVID-19. Oh, terrible. Was a member. The group was known for pranks. Hmm, penises on Zoom. Uh, much, uh, much obliged to our investor. Uh, I have so many resources. Uh, they just abound. Uh, I will. Reading is more important than watching television. I will give you. I'll give you one little tidbit from. Marsha that uh, Marsha Clark wrote this is in her book since we talked about the officers and the search warrant we talked about that last week and I talked about how they didn't uh, Jeffrey Tubin did not include all of the 
uh, misdeeds around the search warrant. So this is Marshall Clark kind of summing up the police officer's conduct, including Mark Furman from her book, Without a Doubt, which, you know, of course, O.J. did it. Marshall Clark says this one aspect of the case, the search warrant, puzzled me. Back in the mid-80s, when he was still a patrolman, Mark Furman had been called out to 360 North Rockingham, uh, O.J. Simpson spot, for some unspecified family dispute call. This was a fact that he apparently had confided in his superior, Ron Phillips, on the morning of June 13th, the Monday after the murders. Hours literally after the murders. Ron, in turn, told Phil... Who, was, who professed not to know quite what to make of it. Later, I would receive among documents sent over by the city attorney's office the copy of a letter Furman had written at the office's request to shore up its 1989 battery case against Simpson. In the letter, Mark had mentioned how he'd come upon O.J. Simpson pacing in his driveway. Nicole sat on the hood of a Mercedes-Benz, its windshield shattered, apparently by Simpson, wielding apparently by Simpson Oops, lost my place. wielding a baseball bat when Furman inquired as to what happened Simpson replied I broke the windshield it's mine and there's no trouble here Furman had asked Nicole if she wanted to make a report and she said no he did not include that she was beaten bludgeoned battered bruised any of that continuing most curious the most curious part of the letter was its closing it seems odd to remember such an event but it is not every day that you respond to a celebrity's home for a family dispute for this reason the incident was indelibly pressed in my memory hmm. if we recall Tubin mentions this Mark Furman was the only <coughs> excuse me Mark Furman was the only officer who would step forward to submit a report saying, yes, I think OJ Simpson is a batterer and we should pursue charges. If it wasn't for Mark Furman, there would have been no conviction on OJ Simpson's record for domestic abuse. First time, last time continuing. Uh, this squared perfectly with the Mark Furman I had seen admiring the bronze statue of Simpson on the morning of June 13. Clearly, Furman adored the Jews and was not about to arrest him if he didn't have to. Still, didn't the mere fact that Furman knew of prior domestic violence between Simpsons color the cops thinking about Simpson as a suspect on the morning they left Bundy for Rockingham? Question mark. Frankly, all I remember was him saying he'd been there a long time ago and it may have involved domestic violence. It was a passing remark and it didn't mean much at the time. A call from 10 years ago sure didn't add up to what we saw at Bundy. You can say that again. Do I think Phil was naive? Yes. Do I think he was lying? No. That conviction grows stronger as time wears on. What you had in this situation was four cops who, on one hand, worshipped O.J. Simpson and on the other were seriously shaken by the mayhem at Bundy. I believe in my heart that they were actually resisting the idea that the juice could have caused this horror. Hmm. The two words adored worshipped do we think Mark Furman adored the juice? 
do we think Furman Van Adder Lang worshipped O.J. Simpson? Use your brain computers, boys and girls. 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. First few folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary to share, proceed. Can I be heard? Henry in Chicago, he's got OJ's knife in the backyard. Yes, sir. Yep, and I'm going to carve the uh, Christmas turkey with <laughs> Greetings, Gus, and uh, greetings to all the callers and uh, listeners. Um, I am actually glad that I read this book now compared to reading it back in 96 when it was released. I was... Uh, my last year of uh, undergrad at the time. And uh, I think I said this a couple of weeks before that I, I didn't think that OJ did it. But being more confused uh, at that time about racism, I probably would have read this book and, 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 and changed my opinion on it. But I'm glad I read it now because of the fact that uh, Jeff Tubin is very deceptive in his wording. Uh, in his explanation of a lot of things uh, that uh, uh, that he is saying, and he is strongly trying to convince people that O.J. like really did it. So uh, he says uh, in the uh, in the in the beginning that uh, O.J.'s poll numbers were slipping daily. Like was O.J. Simpson a politician? Like poll numbers. Um, in the uh, in his investigation of, uh, of of the Furman case, um, you know he was looking to see if you know anybody had sued Mark Furman. But I just I didn't think uh, you know he didn't say anything about uh, were there any official police uh, uh, complaints about him. Uh, you know maybe maybe I might have missed that, but you know I guess he was looking for kind of like civil cases against him. And he actually and he stumbled upon the Furman uh, suing the LAPD. Um, but what was interesting was the uh, evaluation uh, of Furman, and it just made it seem like you know his interpretation of it made it seem like Furman was crazy, or you know he had mental issues, uh, you know, and not because he's a you know not because he's a race soldier, you know he's you know, he's got a lot of pressure being a cop and, you know, that's why he called, you know, black people niggers and, you know, all this kind of crazy stuff. Um, he's a Vietnam vet. What was also interesting too, you know, when, when they, when he was mentioning that, uh, another infamous race soldier, John Burge, uh, also a Vietnam vet and, uh, Burge also using some of those techniques, uh, that was used in Vietnam on, uh, on uh, non-white black males uh, as well. Um, I was uh, curious about the insertion of Pavlik. Uh, was he supposed to be a good white cop uh, in regards to uh, outing Furman? You know, I'm, I wasn't too sure about that. Uh, Tubin's uh, uh, meeting with uh, Shapiro and him being shocked at, you know, 
Mark Furman's possibility of, you know, of, 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 uh, planning evidence, you know, I, that, you know, once again, too, been defending Mark Furman, uh, uh, and, and a lot of other white people who uh, defended Mark Furman as being preposterous of planning evidence. And lastly, Tubin also, you know, being surprised about Shapiro uh, being upset about him uh, uh, being on Larry King's show. And, you know, what Tubin did was actually, was actually, uh, he was actually liable, to, you know, to being sued, you know, because, you know, he's revealing stuff about a, a major murder case, a capital murder case. Uh, and, and he's basically revealing a lot of stuff, which he said that uh, he said that Shapiro said that that was not an interview. And, you know, he tried to weasel his way around it by saying, well, let's just say it was somebody from the defense team. And then he goes on TV, starts blabbing about it, about it and it almost kind of blows the case. I can understand why Shapiro was 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 mad at him. You know, and that, you know, Tubin basically kind of almost blew the case. So I can understand that. So, you know, Tubin is a racist who is basically trying to convince the reader that, you know, OJ did it. So the, this is what I get from this book so far. Um, but like I said, I'm glad I'm reading it now compared to, you know, 96, because I would have probably changed my opinion on it. But uh, now I'm firmly, I'm firm that, that, that OJ didn't do this case. So, uh, I mean, didn't do the murder. So uh, that's all I have under my life. Wow. Not too many of those folks, they say. Uh, apologists for Oriental James Simpson. Uh, much obliged. I would have too if I had read this book in not if I had read this book in '96, uh, really, or 2006. May well, I think by 2016, I'd have been better. Hopefully, but. 2006 I don't know cows didn't exist then so don't know and certainly if I had watched the FX series even in 2016 they would have got me this scene incidentally we heard at the beginning the interview with uh, Shapiro and Tubin that is in FX other folks who dialed in proceed can I be heard maybe uh, let's see. We'll get red in Ohio. F. Lee Bailey has his investigators. They uh, are getting your GPS coordinates right now. I know. Just awful. Um, I'll be quick. Um, thank you for allowing me to share. Hello, everyone. Um, a couple of the things, I'll keep it short. A couple of things that stuck out to me was when Tubin basically uh, deceived his way into getting to uh, Shapiro's office. And I was thinking, you know, that's, uh, I guess what some people would call white privilege, just, you know, just a benefit of being a white person um, and just being able to basically fit in. Um, and I'm trying to separate, I'm trying to make sure I separate like between like what, because I've been reading the, the Furman book between what I've been hearing in this book and it's it's really interesting how Tubin, contrary to what at least uh Mr. Bailey said yesterday about uh Tubin's involvement and really attention to the case, 
it seems like in this book, he Tubin is really um, making it seem like he was there every day and very, um, I don't know, the, it seemed like the case was the most important thing to him. So for, for Tubin to just so happen to, uh, I don't want to say so happen, but for him to go to Shapiro's office and kind of share this information and then for Shapiro to, to say that um, Furman is like, you know, this really racist cop and just really be so surprised. It's interesting. And, you know, if anyone does read Furman's book, uh, it's definitely, I would say it's kind of like a contrast between what Tubin is making it seem that Shapiro and Furman's relationship was, or at least acquaintanceship versus what Furman uh, says about Shapiro and his uh, acquaintanceship. Um, then there was something else. The one thing I can say about this book is I do like, like the background, especially about uh, Shapiro, but I feel like as, as usual, when it comes to white people, especially when it comes to like their quote unquote rag to riches or, you know, their um, pulling up by their bootstrap stories, I feel like there's always something left out, which is the benefits, the privileges of being white. He said that his father, you know, just worked a couple of jobs and then that wasn't Shapiro's father just worked a couple of jobs and that was enough for, you know, him to be able to go to law school, which that doesn't make sense to me. Um, so there's definitely something, you know, left out. And then with him joining that group, and I actually, I didn't research the group, but I thought that was interesting too. Um, I feel like I'm forgetting something. Sorry. I haven't taken detailed notes right now, but I'll go ahead and mute my line and share some more later. Thank you. Much obliged read in Ohio. Uh, uh, Mark Furman's book, Murder in Brentwood, uh, is the title about, well, he has an illustrious library at this point. Uh, he stopped his detecting and just writes fiction all the time now. He gets to lie and get paid for it, uh, which I guess he did before. So he just different, different form maybe. Uh, but Murder in Brentwood is the book specifically about the these murders. Uh, let's see. Our other female caller. Uh, that we missed before. Thank you for your patience. Hi, can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Um, this is Cherry in Atlanta, and greetings to everyone. Um, so, again, I was a child when when this first when this happened, and I never studied the O.J. Simpson trial outside of pop culture. And if I'm honest with myself. I think I believe that he was guilty, but he just happened to like slip through the cracks and, you know, he was, he was able to, to be judged not guilty. Um, but now that I'm reading, I'm starting to believe that he was in fact truly not guilty, but I did find the section about Mark Berman, very interesting, um, the part with him seeking disability um, pension. And with everything that was revealed in his interviews and evaluations and everything, I found it interesting that nobody had any calls with or any concern about letting him rejoin the force once his disability claim was denied. I found that very interesting. And also, um, it was mentioned that 
Cadillac also um, was able to get disability um, pension. But I'm just curious to know how many people in the LAPD actually go out um, on disability pensions and what is the nature of their disability? I'm, I'd be curious to know that and also the demographics. Um, but so far, it's very interesting, and I'll meet my line. Thank you. Much obliged. It sounded it sounded like uh, Pavlik uh, when he was able to get disability. It seemed like he might have had some health issues, although it did seem conveniently timed with the L.A. riots, Rodney King, all of that. That would be a good time to say, you know what? I am ready to relocate. That writing books sounds like a much better profession. But yeah, that would be good information to get as well. Uh, let's see. Other folks uh, who have a hand up, if you have commentary, proceed. Can I be heard? Retired firefighter in Florida. Yes, sir. Greetings, Gus. Greetings to everyone. Uh, Mark Furman uh, kind of dominates this first first half, uh, and rightfully so. Uh, I would... It, I would factor in that uh, the uh, defense team would need anything other than Mark Furman uh, uh, because not only is he a racist, uh, he would be showcased by other white people as being a racist, which white people don't do a whole lot of that, of accusing and identifying another white person as being a racist. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're very good attorneys. I'm, I'm, I haven't uh, watched the, uh, I haven't listened to the program from yesterday, and I'm pretty sure that it was, uh, that, uh, that the indications were there of uh, the guest being a very good attorney uh, into uh, uh, winning the case for his, uh, his, uh, 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 clientele, uh, and uh, I mean, he already he already went into the job of more than likely having experiences of killing non-white males. In that particular case, they were called gooks, uh, Vietnamese, uh, Charlie. That that's those different uh, terminologies that were made up by white people. And uh, he, you know, I mean, and all the while, you know, as, as soon as he was able to, that's why a lot of uh, white males even joined the uh, joint law enforcement, especially LAPD, to be able to mistreat, terrorize, and or kill non-white people uh, without, with very little resistance on the part of the of their uh, rules and regulations of their job and the people who, who were to enforce them. Uh, if there was such thing as some sort of mental health examinations, you can't trust white people into uh, enacting such a thing and making a determination that a white person is incapable mentally of uh, uh, having a job such as an enforcement official. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, uh, so, uh, he is the, and, and as far as, uh, uh, admiration 
of Arenthal James Simpson on his part is concerned. He may have had it, but it, it was only if, if at best it would may have been a disguise. Uh, 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 white people are good at doing that, uh, uh, disguise to to hide his means of of vitriol and like winning the lottery. Uh, the idea of of uh, he can uh, fix things to whereas uh, Mr. Simpson would be identified as the killer of two white people. Uh, he went about his energetic way. I mean, a lot, lot of energy uh, uh, to uh, go about the means of uh, uh, logistically making that happen with, you know, throwing the gloves, you know, over in his yard and, and different things of that nature to be able to get that done. And so he, he would, had he accomplished that, he would have really felt real good about himself and more than likely bragged about it to uh, some other white people like himself. And that's, those are my thoughts. That's all I have to say for this particular first half. Thank you. Much obliged. Retired firefighter in New York. Mr. Furman did seem to have a reputation for uh, bragging, bragging about mistreating black people, bragging about disliking Negras, bragging in general uh, about his conduct exploits as a race soldier, even about his involvement in this case. Uh, Let's see. Other folks with a hand up. Thomas in New York. Yes, sir. Yes, good evening, Gus. I wish I would have known you had Mr. Bailey on. Um, Man, I'm surprised. This guy was old (laughs) during OJ case. I'm surprised. White people just don't die, man. It's like the queen. Like, I don't know. Um, Mark Fermi. Chris Kyle, what a comparison. Uh, I could just imagine Mark Furman gunning away at the Vietnamese people. Um, he left the military because Mexicans and niggers didn't want to listen. Um, so he becomes an L.A. police officer. I would make the Mexicans and niggers listen. I would join the LAPD. I mean, he couldn't have a more perfect job. And he was thriving. Um, but they said he was chasing the big one. I, I wonder what that means. I mean, what's the... Um, but when you look at the Furman foul, and um, if, if you don't mind, Gus, can I read an excerpt? I don't know if this is in the book or not, um, but I just have a quick er- excerpt. Um, she writes, uh, well, in the foul, it says, two of my buddies were shot and ambushed policemen. Both down when I arrived, I was the first unit at the scene. Four suspects ran into a second-story apartment, and we kicked, in the, we kicked the door down, grabbed the girl, and one of their girlfriends by the hair stuck a gun on her head and used her as a barricade. Um, and that's all I'm going to say. Innocent black female, um, Mr. Fern, um, no misconduct foul on the record. They had the, um, his misconduct records um, for him suing the pension um, buried in a subterranean tunnel under La City. It was just waiting for the inevitable earthquake to um, take the evidence all away. Um, man, L.A., worst police force. 
Western New York City. <laughs> Probably south of Chicago. Um, but on um, Furman, net worth of $4 million today. He's uh, he's listed as the forensic and crime scene expert on Fox News. This guy, a man who contaminated so far in the book, has contaminated two crime scenes and failed to find a, ner- a knife at one of them. He's a forensic and crime scene expert. Um, I think that goes to Mr. Fuller's. White people don't get fired, they get promoted. Um, Mr. Tubin, he finds these Furman files and immediately wants to go tell Shapiro <laughs> to get a reaction. <laughs> and then he calls Mark Furman to get the response. Like, I'm looking, I'm listening to this, like, man, I wonder if, you know, sometimes lawyers put little information out to the media so they can. But I don't think that was the intent. I think he kind of um, went to Shapiro like, hey, I'm on your side. I'm going I'm to write to help you. And then as soon as he got the information, he called Furman to warn him. <laughs> That's what I think happened. Um, and um, it leads to him writing this story entitled The Race Card Until He Changed It. Uh, how can you entitle something The Race Card after you? He's one of the few people that's read the Furman files. Like, this is a outright racist. And, um, man, um, Shapiro, the deal maker, um, he, um, he pay, he gets paid to, for people to plead not guilty and get no jail time. That's his job. Um, but he was smart enough to know he was way, way in, um, over his head. He would actually have to go to trial with this and prepare a case. So he hired the right people. I thought that was, um, smarter Shapiro. I always looked at him as a coach. He was the coach of the dream team. He certainly wasn't a player. I'll be with my line. Thank you, Gus. Much obliged, Thomas in New York. Uh, I forgot to do my obligatory. Let us stay within the chronology of the story. The tidbit about the barricade is actually in the text, but that is way down the road. That is like a year uh, from now in the chronology. So yes, much obliged. We will get to that a long time from now. Um, let's see other folks, anybody else that we missed completely. And we got everybody not sure. I'll double check before we get to the second audio segment. Let's see. Um, the race car. They actually said in the New Yorker, they had to change the title of Tubin's article to an incendiary defense because the race card was close to the title of another article in the same issue. So I said, dang, now I got to go look at that whole issue to see what was that they have somebody, somebody else was being accused of playing the race card in the same issue. July 1994 of the New Yorker folks can check that out if they have free time, maybe. Uh, let's see. Uh, he says, my art. Oh, my Lord. Come on. Come on. Why are we reading this book? Zoom bomber of the year, Jeff Tubin, before he jumps on the race card with OJ Simpson, was writing about Michael Jackson as a sexual abuser. And he gets tipped off to the OJ case by Alan Dershowitz, 
who right now with all this about Galeen Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein, and he got accused to masturbating Jeff Tubin, the audacity to be writing about Michael Jackson as a sex abuser. Johnny Cochran represented him too. That was his article, the cash for trash. Let's see. So he says, uh, my article focused entirely on how the investigation of Michael Jackson for sexual abuse of minors had been severely compromised by so many potential prosecution witnesses had been paid by the tabloids. I had a chance to add a few details about the tabloids role in the early days of the Simpson case, specifically with regards to Jill Shively and the Ross Cutlery witnesses. And my story appeared on the newsstand on Tuesday, July 5, 1994. Now, I haven't read any of his reports on Michael Jackson, but just by the fact that you're linking this with lying Jill Shively and the fact that you're going to stand by her all the way to 2016 in the FX series that's based on this book and where he was a consultant. She's a liar. She didn't see O.J. Simpson. All you got is her word. And she is an absolute liar. Marsha Clark said she's a liar. That's why she decided not to bring her to trial. And that's. The angle that you're going to continue to use that, oh, man, we have these people that are ready to testify and convict no good black males like Michael Jackson and O.J. Simpson. And we just get mad because they took some money from the Enquirer. Like, get out of here, Jeff Tubin. You are a liar. And I think you're practicing racism by willfully picking people who have no credibility and presenting them as though these are valued, legitimate sources. White people, I might add, if Jill Shively was Juanita Brown, I don't know if he'd be presenting her as, oh, yeah, she's a legit witness. Mm -hmm. Much less if she didn't see OJ, she thought, oh, no, it was some white people or somebody else tending to exculpate. I don't think it'd be the same response either. Uh, Let's see. The point about Furman wanting to make the big arrest, I thought that was important. Uh, The exaggeration, and I want a lot of attention. Something just strikes me that that narcissism uh, in wanting to get a lot more credit, taking credit for things that someone hasn't done. Great comparison with Chris Kyle exaggerating and having fun shooting and killing black people. Matter of fact, that's the Planet of the Apes. Uh, I forgot the uh, white man who made the screenplay back in the 1960s and what have you but he bragged uh, about killing gooks and japs in vietnam you know same spirit of chris kyle american sniper uh let's see he bragged about the chokehold and all that eric garner some folks that's why i said all of this needs to be put in context it's the rampart scandal rodney king oj simpson assassination of notorious big that's all together study of white supremacy in LAPD in the 1990s. Uh, let's see the <clears throat> he Furman complaint. He was doing his playing the victim. He was telling Dr. Hockman, they shoot little kids and they shoot other people and make me feel bad. We catch them and beat them. He's just bragging about beating them. <laughs> we catch them and beat them and we get sued or suspended. They had already said Mark Furman had not been sued. Not successfully. That's what he was looking for. And he said, technically he hasn't been sued. People have raised cases and they've all been quashed. No evidence. Same. I think we've heard that before, right? Uh, let's see. It continues. 
In all of Furman's own briefs, he was portrayed as a dangerously unbalanced man. As one of them put it, Furman was substantially incapacitated for the performance of his regular and customary duties as a policeman. In the city's answers, however, he was called a competent officer, albeit one involved in an elaborate ruse to win a pension. Skipping down, Furman was either a psychotic or a malingerer. The picture of him was an unattractive one. Furman lost his case and as a result remained on the force. Why not be fired? One of our listeners brought that up. Why is that grounds for, okay, continue to to maintain your gun and badge to terrorize the Negros and non-white people in general of the greater LA area? Why would that be? Why not? No, thanks. You can get out and no pension because we don't want malingerers hanging around here either, much less malingerers who are lying about killing and terrorizing black people, Negros, excuse me. Guess that's not how things were. Again, Rampart, assassination of notorious B.I.G., Rodney King, all one thing. Uh, I thought now about Pavlik, I thought this was important because there are so many of these. And what I mean is people who some, many of them who thought O.J. Simpson was guilty, right? As the, all of this was being reported, and particularly once you start hearing Tubin's story and the L.A. Times did a report around the same time period about, oh, man, this Furman's got this record and talking about killing Negros. And wow, I don't know. Is this going to be a big deal? This is in July of 94. So this is a year. The Furman tapes don't come out until over a year later. They don't come out until like, I think, August of 95. So it's like 13 months before all this. What Thomas just said, that's why I said that's way down the road. That's not going to come out for 13 months later. So this is all like, hmm what's up with this Furman guy hmm do you think he could have planted a glove that's crazy talk no he didn't he does have these interesting police records but that's crazy talk that he planted some glove but as all of this is coming out and not being believed everybody thinks Mark Kerman is cool and OJ is guilty there are a lot or I won't say lots but there are a number of folks just like Dr. Pavlik who see all this and are like oh man that OJ is guilty there's no way nobody planted a glove. That nigger did it. Absolutely. He hacked up that white woman. It's an absolute disgrace. Say some officer planted a glove. Let me get my glass. So I can say. Let's see. He said that officer. What's his name? Officer Mark Furman planted a glove. That. Wait a minute. Mark Furman. Mark. <gasps> Mark Furman. That happened so many times. <laughs> People were like, oh, my God. He's more racist than I thought. Let me call Johnny Conway. Like they ended up getting witnesses and everything just as a result of that happening. It was way more than just like, how do you have that? Where you have people out of the woodwork, white people out of the woodworks, like, whoa, this Mark Furman dude is super racist. He and saying the same thing. He bragged about killing black people. He hated interracial. How is that? That all of these random people, Many of them who thought O.J. Simpson was guilty. But whoa, this Mark Furman. Oh, yeah, he is. How often does that even happen where you say, I think this one white person could be racist. And then you have a chorus of other white people. Who say, oh, my God. Yes, I know that fellow or I know that woman. She he is racist. Woo, let me tell you. <laughs> Biblical, I'm telling <laughs> biblical let's see let's see uh, 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 
Oh, that name is important. Robert Deutsch. His wife, F. Lee Bailey, mentioned yesterday. He said she wrote one of the better books on the trial. He said O.J. Simpson went up to her and thanked her for her coverage in, you know, giving him uh, being more just in the way she reported on all of this. But Tubin says Pavlik had done a bit of work for a civil lawyer named Robert Deutsch in a case for a client, Joseph Britton in 1988, Britton had robbed a man at an automatic telemachine where Furman and his partner had set up a stakeout in the chase after the robbery. Britton was shot. He ultimately pleaded guilty to the robbery, but he later filed a civil suit alleging that the police Furman and his partner had used racial epithets in the course of the arrest and had planted and placed a knife at Britton's feet to justify the shooting. Mentioned with F. Lee Bailey just yesterday when people say, hey, if Furman was such a racist and he had did all these things for all these years, why aren't there black people and Mexican people stepping out and saying, hey, I was one of Furman's victims? They did. This is one. The LAPD settled a suit with Mr. Britton during the O.J. Simpson trial. Mr. Bailey talked about all of that yesterday. Uh Let's see. Oh, yeah, I loved it. Red talked about it, how uh, Jeffrey Tubin lied and weasel. Now, imagine imagine Al Sharpton wandering in, going up to security. I don't have an appointment. Is this where Ronald Reagan's office is? That's what he said. Is this where Ronald Reagan's office is? And this, Oh, yeah, sure, Reverend Al. I love you, Reverend Al. Can I get your autograph? We just love you out here. Let me escort you over to the elevator. And you just wander up. And then after you get there, you don't even have an appointment. You just wander on around and poke on into the office and make up another lie and get imagine Al Sharpton doing that. Let's see. Oh, a caller in Florida. Yes, sir. Have you heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Uh, that was a very good point about, um, like, the white power advantages uh, that the uh, Jeff Tubin was able to practice. And I was thinking of a, another uh, portion of where they were describing, uh, I think, where they said OJ had, I think it was a bat in his hand and the windows of the window was smashed. Um, I guarantee that white people were picking up on the, uh, the self-respect and the confidence that he had in himself. Um, that's one thing I've been, uh, thinking about reading or listening to the, uh, previous programs. And I think that was him that was engaging with him and asked Nicole about following a, police report like are you sure you don't want to do it you sure you sure um you know he, he had that done something so just uh for them to make an assumption that he had some kind of admiration for uh oj simpson i said uh i think i find that interesting and other than that um i think they mentioned larry king um uh, and it that reminded me it reminded me of a uh, an older broadcast or older episode you did concerning the 
um, what the guy name was. Uh, I can't remember his name, um, but he made the, he almost said Negro. I think you know what I might be talking about, but this might not be uh, concerning O.J. Simpson, but just the racism that he practiced. But other than that, that's all I have to share. Thanks for allowing me to speak. Much obliged, uh, our caller, the Florida courthouse. Uh, I think uh, if memory serves, that was uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, that old Larry King was. Yes, sir. Yeah, where he slipped, he was going to say Negro, and he slipped, and it was like he got about almost to the G, and they choked it. It's like, close one. African-Americans, and they got it back together, and he kept it in the road. But, yeah, I I think that was uh, the way to talk about racism, white supremacy, uh, who got mentioned. They mentioned Jeffrey Dahmer. Hey, we didn't see him all handcuffed and stuff, but O.J. Simpson immediately cuffed up. He wasn't even arrested at the time. Uh, let's see. Uh, have anything else? Oh yeah. With Furman talking about Adda right now, as I said, Marsha Clark said, Mark Furman adored OJ Simpson, the juice affectionately. Now (laughs) he's talking here to, let's see, this is speaking to one of the journalists and he says, I asked him what he made of the Furman records. There's worse stuff too, he told me. This is a guy who used to wake up every day and say to his wife, I'm going to kill some niggers this morning. Now, again, I'm someone who, you know, boast, call myself doing work on racism, white supremacy. And again, if you had told me, uh, Mark Furman, can you tell me some things he's known for saying that would not have been on my list? I'm going to wake up and kill some niggas this morning. He didn't even say it like afternoon today. He said this morning, like by 1159, plural, some niggas are going to be dead. What does it mean to be white and how is it? How is it? This doesn't get mentioned when Dylan Roof pops up in 2015. Oh, whoa, we've heard this before. Mark Furman, right? Mm-hmm. I would have been mentioning Mark Furman every day. Like, we've heard this before. This is not just Pitchfork uh, Ben Tillman. This is pretty recurrent. We've had some prominent whites who have expressed these same type of views. Dylan Storm Roof said the same thing. I'm going to wake up this morning. Kill me some niggers. What does it mean to be white? Wow, they did an amazing job sanitizing all of this. Uh, he Jeff Tubin, so he calls Mark Furman, right? I guess he could say he's trying to be a journalist, right? Uh, I think Mark Furman, all these stories were coming. So I think he knew, like he had already got the heads up that they were going to go check out his records and all that. So I think he, lots of people uh, were giving him, preparing him so that he could deal with this. The prosecution was already questioning him. They knew the end, all the nigger stuff was going to come up. So, but when he calls him to ask him, so did you plan a glove? And so the first time he says, that's a ridiculous question. And so that's his response is the same logical response I have. He didn't answer the question. Uh Oh, <laughs> you know, we, 
come on, that's absurd. I did no such thing. You know, we did outstanding work and the evidence will show that he's guilty. <laughs> I don't have anything else to say. Thank you for calling. It's like some, you could even do shorter than that, but that's a ridiculous question. Uh-oh. <laughs> he didn't say no. Uh-oh. So he asks again, did you plant the glove? His response, of course, it didn't happen. I found that curious because that's still not. No. Of course not. Absolutely not. That's a stupid question. I did no such that it's none of that. It's of course it didn't happen. If let's put it in a different context. So you were in a relationship and your partner says, are you sleeping around on me? And they answered, of course it didn't happen. You're satisfied. No sleepless nights. You don't need any follow-up. Oh, okay. Cool in the gang. Let's go get a slice of cake, right? Everything. <laughs> Let's try a different context. So did you steal any money from my account? Of course it didn't happen. All right. No problem. I'm satisfied. That's, that's how we feel about that one. Like Mark flipping Furman. Uh, let's see a horrible human event. He mentioned Charlie Rose. I just, I didn't even know he was going to mention Charlie Rose so quick because Charlie Rose, I guess he's not Larry King, but he interviewed lots of people from this spectacle as well. Charlie Rose interviewed, uh, Johnny Cochran and that's the next chapter. Uh, he interviewed Johnny Cochran and he did the same thing when he interviewed Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld, who are also on OJ's defense team, where he interrupted them every word. and was almost demanding that they relitigate the case and prove that OJ is, in fact, innocent. But he did the same thing with Johnny Cochran, and he seemed to take great offense at Johnny Cochran. I can't even say it's just I just watched this yesterday. Like, oh, my God, Charlie Rose is so lame. And what a suspected racist anyway. And I posted his interview that he did with uh, Jeffrey Tubin. Uh Incidentally, when he gets to uh, Larry King, he says on the air, King always maintained a scrupulous nonpartisanship. Uh, Charlie Rose does not. His renowned even handedness extended to his famously busy social life. Talk about mealy mouth. Like, are we talking about his sexual conduct during the trial? King simultaneously dated Joe Ellen Demetrius, the defense team's jury consultant and Suzanne Childs, Gil Garcetti's director of communications. Man, oh man. Imagine if that was Don Lemon. Al Sharpton sleeping around with all these different white women or if it was you know non-white females in the midst of all of this like and this it's almost like a point of pride in fact they talked about the fx series because they, larry king is in the fx series talking to all these people he plays himself they talk about he interviewed uh faye resnick about all the drugs and crazy sex parties that she had with nicole brown simpson and and oj of course did it blah blah, blah. and uh the actor who plays Faye Resnick 
on the FX series that he was all like flirty and like, whoa, she said, I don't know if he got biblical with Faye Resnick, meaning sexual intercourse. Again, the, the in mealy mouth putty, pussy footing. But imagine if that was Bill Cosby who had behaved this kind of way, like it would not be lionized and all oh, that Larry King, you sly devil, you anywho. Uh, I will stop there. Uh, lots more uh, to get to. Uh, Joe Ellen Demetrius, super important. You should highlight her name. I suspect she will come up again. Very, very important person in the trial. Uh, from there, take notes. If you have more to share, we will get to audio segment number two. So we're picking up in chapter nine, welcoming Johnny L. Cochran Jr. to the defense team. The run of his life, the people versus O.J. Simpson. Jeffrey Tubin, Context of White Supremacy, Audio Segment 2. Chapter 9 Mr. Cochran Wants to Know One of the enduring fictions of the Simpson case was the notion of the defendant himself as involved in his defense. Press reports persistently portrayed Simpson as virtually a member of his own defense team. O.J., it was said, was plotting strategy and planning his own defense. Simpson's attorneys manufactured this idea primarily as a gift to their client and as a way of remaining in his good graces. Moreover, the idea of Simpson as a formidable figure in his own right, an African-American of stature, helped rally black support to him. In addition, the lawyers knew that many journalists would take their line about Simpson's level of involvement at face value, even as it was transparently false. Treating Simpson as the equal of his lawyers fit nicely with the paternalistic approach many mainstream journalists take in writing about race. According to these informal standards, white reporters can write with candor about the intellectual limitations of their fellow whites, but not blacks. Absurdly, black sensibilities are thought to be too tender for the truth. Indeed, it is thought to be flirting with a charge of racism to draw attention to the intellectual limitations of any African American, especially a prominent one like Simpson. So accepting the idea of Simpson as the peer of his attorneys relieved the mainstream press of confronting the obvious truth about him, that he was an uneducated, semi-illiterate ex-athlete who could barely understand much about the legal proceedings against him. O.J. didn't even understand the nature of the defense strategy Shapiro had constructed. Shapiro was, for example, incredulous that Simpson wanted Jerry Spence as his lawyer. Shapiro had nothing against Spence, but he regarded the Wyoming attorney as self-evidently the wrong man for the job. The defense in this case would be race. Shapiro had decided that from the very beginning. What could Spence offer to, in Shapiro's preferred code words, a downtown jury? In truth, Shapiro didn't really want any other lawyers added to the team. In the first week after the murders, he had assembled all the supporting players he wanted, and he regarded any more high-profile assistance as superfluous, not to mention a threat. But O.J.'s friends, much the same group that had lobbied Simpson to evict Weitzman from the case, felt otherwise. They worried about Shapiro's reputation as a plea bargainer. They fretted about his relative lack of trial experience. 
The informal leader of O.J.'s kitchen cabinet, Wayne Hughes, a private warehouse mogul, made clear that he and his peers wanted another high-powered trial attorney on the team. Shapiro reluctantly agreed, but O.J. wanted Jerry Spence. Out of a sense of obligation to his client, Shapiro went so far as to invite Spence to California for consultations about the case. On Friday, July 15th, Spence came to Los Angeles for a secret meeting, held at the Beverly Hills home of Shapiro's friend, Michael Klein. Shapiro presented the possibility of Spence joining the defense team in terms he knew the lawyer would reject. I will be the lead counsel, Shapiro told the famously strong-willed Spence. Shapiro also told Spence of his plans to make race a key part of the defense, and in particular of his intention to use Mark Furman as the focus of that strategy. Though Shapiro had spoken to me about Furman on Wednesday, July 13th, my story would not hit the newsstands until the following Monday, after Spence's visit to Los Angeles. As Shapiro could have surmised, Spence had neither the experience nor the inclination to defend this double murder case based on a non-existent conspiracy of racist police officers. And again, as Shapiro surely predicted, Spence had no desire to play second fiddle to anyone. I have to be captain of the ship, he told Shapiro. In the course of their meeting, Shapiro mentioned to Spence in passing that he was also talking to Johnny Cochran about joining the team as a trial lawyer. Who else but the foremost black attorney in Los Angeles to conduct a defense based on race? Spence averred that Cochran sounded like a much better fit. Shapiro agreed. So did Wayne Hughes, and so ultimately did all of Simpson's friends who were consulted. For a time, only O.J. demurred. He liked Cochran, had even talked to him several times since the murders, but he wasn't sure if he wanted him as his lawyer. It is one of the richer and more revealing ironies of the case that only O.J. Simpson, I'm not black, I'm O.J., failed to understand the preeminent place of race in his own defense. Simpson was himself so alienated from the world of his fellow black Angelinos that he alone failed to recognize what was obvious to whites and blacks alike, that Johnny L. Cochran Jr. had been waiting his whole life for this case, and this case had been waiting for Johnny Cochran as well. Shapiro and the others prevailed upon Simpson to put aside his infatuation with Spence, and Cochran was hired officially on Monday, July 18th. Since the day of the murders, Cochran had been commenting on the case almost daily for the Today Show and other programs, presenting himself as a nominally independent outside analyst of the case. In fact, he had been laying the groundwork all along for the role that he saw would probably be coming his way. Shortly after the freeway chase, for example, Cochran told Bryant Gumbel on Today, I think Mr. Cowlings is probably a hero and helped save O.J. Simpson's life. I would urge all your viewers to keep an open mind until you've heard all the evidence and don't prejudge the case so that hopefully we can get a fair trial. During the preliminary hearing, Katie Couric asked Cochran on Today if he thought the police had violated Simpson's rights in searching his house. 
I think it's a little more in favor of the defense right now, Cochrane said. They were there, it seems to me, looking for suspects, and they created this fanciful justification for their having gone over the wall after the fact. These officers had the Fourth Amendment backward. Search first, then ask permission. All in all, as Cochrane put it another time on today, I think the defense made a very strong showing. I think this case is now clearly about the Fourth Amendment and whether or not it's alive and well in Los Angeles County. Boundless confidence and infectious enthusiasm served as touchstones of Cochrane's character, and Simpson quickly absorbed his new lawyer's good cheer. Cochrane had a standard greeting for friends and colleagues. Are you okay, my brother? he would ask, and then continue without pausing for an answer. I'm okay. Are you okay? I'm okay. It was patter more than conversation, but it tended to work. On the first day Cochran appeared beside him as a lawyer, O.J. looked better than he had at any time since his arrest. That was at the arraignment on July 22, 1994, when Simpson boomed out his absolutely 100% not guilty. Simpson's spirits reflected Cochran's attitude, upbeat, positive, even chipper. Once Cochran signed on to the case, the question of whether Simpson had in fact murdered his ex-wife and her friend became immaterial. Cochran had a gift, and he knew it. Preeminently in his generation of lawyers, Johnny Cochran had perfected the art of winning jury trials in downtown Los Angeles. Now he was going to do it for O.J. Simpson. As the strap on the burlap sack rubbed his shoulder raw and his young man's fingers turned cramped and gnarled under the Louisiana sun, Johnny L. Cochran Sr. had only one thought. This is not for me. He was working the fields in the tiny town of Caspiana, about twenty miles south of Shreveport, and for the first time in his life, harvest duties on the family's eight-acre patch of cotton had fallen to him. It was June 1935, and Johnny had just turned 19. Northern Louisiana was desperately poor country. But the Cochrans were ambitious, even in tiny Caspiana, which had only about 30 families. As an only child, Johnny was blessed with as much good fortune as a sharecropper's son might reasonably allow himself to expect. His father valued education— and foregoing the young man's help in the fields, he sent young Johnny to live with an aunt in Shreveport so that he could go to high school. There, Johnny L. Cochran Sr. would find his life's work, insurance sales. After graduating from high school, he plugged into one of the most important social and financial networks in early 20th century African-American life, albeit one mostly invisible to the white world. Cochran went to work at Louisiana Life, which was one of several black-owned insurance businesses that had cropped up around the turn of the century. In an era when wide-owned banks and insurance companies refused to do any business with black folks, these small and often struggling insurance companies represented practically the only way African Americans could save for the future. Just as important, jobs at these companies represented nearly the only employment options, outside of the ministry, for white-collar work in the black community. 
The slogan of one of the best-known black insurance companies, the company with a soul and a service, reveals that they saw their mission as something more than merely commercial. They were also cautious instruments of black empowerment. The tension between these motives, between God and mammon, the spiritual and the earthly, formed a central theme of the Cochrane family story. Every payday, the dapper young insurance agent would go door-to-door in Shreveport's black neighborhoods. He collected about a nickel a week for the policies, which paid death benefits of about a hundred dollars. Polite, yet dogged, Cochran built a business and a life in the late 1930s. He was promoted to manager and married a local girl. From 1937 to 1940, he and his wife, Hattie, had three children in rapid succession, Johnny Jr., Pearl, and Martha. As it did for so many other families, the specter of World War II threw their ordered lives into tumult. Hattie was in frail health much of her life, and when the draft was reinstated, she feared having to care for her children alone. Johnny Sr. was rated 1A by the draft board, which made him a prime candidate for service overseas. So the family realized that the only way to keep the patriarch out of harm's way was for him to find civilian war work, which was scarce in Louisiana. But Johnny had an aunt who lived in San Francisco, and she said employers there needed an endless supply of able bodies to staff all the factories that were gearing up around the Bay Area. So Johnny hopped the fabled Sunset Limited train and made for the coast. It became a well-worn path. The Cochran family joined one of the greatest internal migrations any country has ever seen, the Black Flight from the South during and after the war. Kinship and custom dictated the destinations. Mississippians went to Chicago, North Carolinians headed to New York, and Texans and Louisianans, like the Cochrans, went to California. Johnny quickly found work as a ship fitter for Bethlehem Steel, building vast troop ships in Alameda, next door to Oakland. He rented a three-bedroom apartment and sent word for Hattie and the kids to join him. The war may have put welding tools in his hands, but Johnny Cochran Sr. was still determined to keep in touch with the white-collar world. After long days at the docks, he took correspondence courses to hone the sales techniques that would serve him in peacetime. Within weeks of VJ Day, the Golden State Mutual Life Insurance Company, the biggest of the black-owned companies on the West Coast, tracked down Cochran in Alameda and offered him a job on the spot. Johnny quit the shipyard that day. He thrived. Promoted to manager in 1947, he was appointed to open a San Diego office in 1948, and then went on to a bigger job in Los Angeles the following year. Having lived in subsidized housing during the war, Johnny Sr. had accumulated a considerable nest egg by this point, and he had a notion of buying an apartment building as an investment in the booming Los Angeles real estate market. He told Hattie the family could live in one of the flats. She wouldn't hear of it. She wanted a house for her family, a big one. And Johnny, as was his custom, 
deferred to her wishes and bought her a house on a pleasant street in an integrated neighborhood called West Adams. Johnny Jr., his mother's favorite, was about to start high school, and Hattie Cochran was determined that he would have nothing but the best. Easy Rollins, The Private Eye, and Walter Mosley's novels once described the Los Angeles of the early 50s this way. California was like heaven for the Southern Negro. People told stories of how you could eat fruit right off the trees and get enough work to retire one day. The stories were true for the most part, but the truth wasn't like a dream. Life was still hard in L.A., and if you worked every day, you still found yourself on the bottom. Such was, in many respects, still is, the paradox of black life in the city. After World War II, thousands of African Americans bought real estate in Southern California, worked in factories for good pay, and shared in the American dream to a degree that would be difficult to fathom in, say, Caspiana, Louisiana. But no one, and especially not black Angelinos, confused their hometown with paradise. The realities of racism, most visible in the blue uniforms of the Los Angeles Police Department, lingered like the smog. Hattie Cochran was determined that no son of hers was going to wind up on the bottom. She and her husband had already escaped from the ghetto, so her hopes for Johnny Jr. called for success on a wider stage, a life of accomplishment and prominence. For all the pluck it took to bring his family into the middle class, the elder Cochran had a diffidence about him, finding contentment in the small things, like family, home, and church. Hattie Cochran hungered for greater success, and she fastened those ambitions onto her firstborn son. The life of the lawyer Johnny Cochran Jr. stands as confirmation of a famous observation of Freud's. If a man has been his mother's undisputed darling, he retains throughout life the triumphant feeling, the confidence in success, which not seldom brings actual success with it. Johnny's mother determined that education would be his route, and she had a simple formula for the kind of place that would push students in the right direction, a school with white children. So Hattie pushed and pulled and made sure that young Johnny came to be one of about 30 black students out of the 2,000 or so at Los Angeles High School, even though he didn't live in the district. For Hattie's son, the experience among the children of doctors and lawyers would prove, as she had predicted, transforming. If you were a person who integrated well, as I was, you got to go to people's houses and envision another life, Cochran has said of those years. I knew kids who had things I could only dream of. I remember going to someone's house and seeing a swimming pool. I was like, that's great. Another guy had an archery range in his loft. An archery range. I could not believe it. I had never thought about archery, but it made me get off my butt and say, hey, I can do this. These slices of life among his largely Jewish peers were every bit as important to Cochran as an afternoon with Willie Mays had been to O.J. Simpson. For Simpson, it meant that sports was the route out. For Cochran, it meant that education was the way up. 
Cochran went to the city's great public university, UCLA, which was then in the midst of its own post-war boom, admitting sons and daughters of the striving middle class and vaulting past its crosstown rival, the private USC. Indeed, the Simpson case illustrated rather starkly the changing fortunes of the two schools. In earlier decades, the private USC traditionally supplied Los Angeles with its leaders, but the public UCLA could count among its alumni not only Cochran, but also Robert Shapiro, Marsha Clark, and Lance Ito, who were all smart kids of modest means when they arrived at the Westwood campus. Only one former USC student figured prominently in the Simpson trial, the defendant. Cochran thrived at UCLA, where he joined the elite black fraternity Kappa Alpha Psi and made a lasting bond with an older Kappa by the name of Tom Bradley. While still in college, Cochran also polished his considerable verbal skills, selling insurance for Golden State Mutual. But he recognized quickly that the most profitable outlet for his talents lay in the law. Cochran graduated from Loyola Law School in 1962, six years before Shapiro did, and faced the classic dilemma of the newly minted lawyer, to do good or to do well. He thought he could do both. The first stirrings of the civil rights movement were beginning in Los Angeles, and Cochran and his new wife, Barbara, a schoolteacher who had attended UCLA with him, had heard Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. when he visited the pulpit of their Second Baptist Church. His message had moved them both. But so, too, did the lessons of his father's business. Serving the black community, he decided, could also serve Johnny Cochran. He spent his first three years in practice as a prosecutor with the city attorney, trying misdemeanor cases and building a reputation as a trial lawyer. When he left the government, he set up shop as a defense lawyer, with one office near downtown and another in largely black Compton. When Watts exploded in the riots of 1965, Cochran basically sat out the controversy. And when the NAACP and other civil rights organizations launched efforts to integrate the fire department and local schools, Cochran left no mark on these struggles. Notwithstanding these absences, Young Johnny Cochran did find his way into the public eye in a case that reflected the city's painful racial dilemmas. In May 1966, Leonard Deadweiler, who was stopped for speeding while rushing his pregnant wife to the hospital, was shot and killed by an LAPD officer. Self-defense, said the police. The Deadweiler family hired Cochran to represent them and the resulting coroner's inquest was televised to a rapt citywide audience. According to the peculiar procedure of the inquest, Cochran had no right to address witnesses himself, but instead had to ask the deputy district attorney on the case to pose questions for him. The 29-year-old lawyer scarcely said anything at the inquest, but the government lawyer's words as he relayed the questions Mr. Cochran wants to know, became something of a mantra heard around the city. After the inquest, the district attorney brought no charges against the officer, and Cochran lost the family's civil suit against the city. But Cochran's career and his issue were launched. 
Many years later, shortly before the murders of Nicole Simpson and Ron Goldman, Cochran summed up the impact of the Deadweiler case in an interview with Gay Jervie of American Lawyer. What Deadweiler confirmed for me was that the issue of police abuse really galvanized the minority community, Cochran said. It taught me these cases could really get attention. Context of white supremacy. So, before we get to the callers, I shamelessly plugged my wish list yesterday when Effley Bailey was here. And uh, I don't know, maybe maybe it works so quickly because I said I have books there that I would love to get on the O.J. Simpson case. Uh, and there are not many that assert that O.J. Simpson is innocent. There are very few. Effley Bailey's book is not even out yet. It's supposed to be coming out next year. But that's one. One, The Verdict, The Chronicle of the O.J. Simpson Trial by Linda Deutsch. Her husband, Robert, was mentioned just a few pages ago. Uh, a used copy of her book is three bucks. That'd be spectacular. Let's see. Legacy of Deception, an investigation of Mark Furman and racism in the LAPD. We've had a listener or three email about his work. Said, hey, you should get him on the program. Kindle edition, six bucks. And then a problem of evidence, how the prosecution freed O.J. Simpson by Joseph Bosco, used copy a buck sixty. He actually Bosco. That's who I referenced. Not only did he have a permanent seat at the trial, as did uh, Linda Deutsch, I believe. I could be incorrect about that, but I think she did also. Uh, and uh, Mr. Bosco had to testify at the trial because I think Thomas in New York talked before about you know people leaking stories to the press. Uh, that was why he had to testify. But that is way down the road but what is present so we just heard about Johnny Cochran and I say all that to say the book that I got today which made today a much better day on the plantation I got Johnny Cochran's book Journey to Justice most of this book is not about the O.J. Simpson trial it's mostly in uh, autobiography about his life and the Deadweiler case some of his other cases dealing with racism Michael Jackson phenomenal book was a bestseller I'd say about the last third of it, maybe the last, yeah, about the last third of it deals with the OJ Simpson case from the day, the June 13th, the Monday after the murders to the verdict. So I'm just going to read a little bit like to share much obliged to the investor who nabbed the book. Reading is more important than watching television. So this is on page 236. Uh, and this is just a few days after just a few days after the murders have been announced. The next morning, I went to the office to catch up on all the work I had neglected through the previous two days of turmoil. There was nothing I would have liked better than to end the day with a quiet evening at home. But Dale, that's his wife, Dale's sisters, Agnes and Kathy were at our guest house guests, and we all made plans to spend the afternoon at the Hollywood Bowl, where Bill Cosby had invited us to be his guests at the Playboy Jazz Festival, which he was hosting. From there, we were to go on to the wedding of our close friends, Lisa Gray and Jacob Airback. They were not the kinds of plans you change on a whim. Bill is a valued friend and advisor of mine. Like all great comic geniuses, he can dissect even the most serious topic using laughter to lead you where you might otherwise fear to go. 
Backstage, though, it was clear that even Cosby was fighting to stave off the gloom that O.J. Simpson's predicament had cast across our party. There were jokes, a great deal of mutual kidding, and some photographs. Then, suddenly, Bill draped his arm around my shoulder and guided me to a private corner. Johnny, he said to me, don't touch it. Don't touch it with a ten-foot pole. The irony. I think I know what you mean, Bill, I replied, knowing perfectly well what he had in mind. It was on my mind, too. The lovely wedding pushed these thoughts from my mind, but only temporarily. To this very day, I remember the look on my father's face when Dale and I walked through the door at home about 1130 that night. Dad, now retired, lived with us, and by the look on his face, I knew that O.J. Simpson had called. Not just once, as Daddy quickly informed me, but four or five times. This first call from O.J. came in on June 18, 1994. I had not seen O.J. for more than a year before that. I had not discussed his case with anyone and knew nothing about the details of this case and would not for months. Inmates in the county jail have access to a phone at specified times during the day. Dad had followed O.J.'s calls to be recorded. Dad had allowed O.J.'s calls to be recorded on our voicemail. Dale and I stood together playing them back. They began with a variety of the halting, somewhat stilted introductions people inevitably use when they resign themselves to talking with a machine. Each message, however, ended with virtually the same words spoken urgently but clearly in O.J.'s low, strong voice. Johnny, I am innocent of these crimes. Please come and see me, man. I need to talk to you. Are you going to take it? Dale asked in a voice that seemed tinged with both anticipation and apprehension. Innocent. How many times has my stomach churned at that fearsome word's sound? O.J. always maintained his innocence from his first tape-recorded call on June 18, 1994, to the day of the verdicts on October 3, 1995. I must say that I have never told anyone, friend or foe, that I believe that O.J. Simpson is guilty or that he should plead guilty to a lesser charge. And how many times have I done precisely what I did that night Turn to the man who is the father of my conscience as well as my body. Well, chief, I said, employing the affectionate nickname by which dad has come, has been known by generations of insurance agents. What do you think? Do you think I should take it? My father is an older man with a younger man's eyes and he fixed them directly on mine. Does he need your help? He asked. If another man needs help and you have it to give, then what is there to decide? With that, he clamped his large and reassuring hand on my shoulder. My father's manner is mild, but his hands are rough. His mind is fixed on the 21st century, but those hands still carry the memory of the cotton fields and their toil as his heart still cherishes the simple decency that allowed so many in his generation to transcend that word again, their time and place. I thought that night that God had never favored any son with a better teacher 
than the chief. And yet the prudent part of me, the man of affairs and substance, remained unsure. O.J.'s call became a nightly ritual. Man, he said to me one night, everybody says I should be talking to you about this case. I need you. I think I need you on this case. I'm innocent. I did not do this. I took a deep breath. Look, OJ, look, OJ, I just don't know at this point. You've got Bob Shapiro. There's so much media attention focused on you right now that if I come down to the jail, it will cause all kinds of talk. You don't need that right now. And before I do anything, I need to talk to Shapiro. O.J. Simpson is not an easy man to put off. It wasn't just that our civil practice was booming, but we were also doing the kinds of cases into which I'd always put my heart, the ones that really make a difference. A criminal case, especially a murder in which the death penalty might be an issue, is a lawyer's highest calling. But on a personal level, it is also a gut-wrenching emotional roller coaster. I simply didn't know whether I really wanted to make that kind of commitment at this stage in my career. Moreover, I had signed an agreement with NBC News to provide legal commentary on the Simpson case. It was an interesting, challenging new line of endeavor and a terrific source of visibility for our firm. Finally, I had the lingering sense that my acquaintance with O.J. Simpson was just close enough to preclude a strictly professional relationship, which was what this case would require. Let's see. Uh, 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 uh. I'll read just a little bit more. Uh, approximately two weeks after the bodies of Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman were discovered, so end of June, I telephoned Shapiro and told him that his client had contacted me. I told Bob that I was not particularly interested in the case, but that before I did anything, I thought we should meet and talk. He agreed, and we made a date to get together in a private room at the Beverly Hills Tennis Club on Maple Drive, where Dale is a member. What stands out most in my mind about that meeting is Bob's unusual dress, black shirt, black pants, and a gleaming silver metal buckle. We chatted briefly about strategy for Simpson's upcoming preliminary hearing and agreed that the defense team still lacked the right trial lawyer. Then I told Bob again of OJ's repeated requests that I come down to the jail for a meeting. Well, gee, Johnny, he grimaced. O.J. is also talking to Jerry Spence. He, of course, is the well-known Wyoming defense attorney easily recognized by his trademark Stetson hat and fringed buckskin coat. Somehow, I found it hard to picture Gary in front of a jury in downtown L.A. where the case by then had been moved. As it turned out, however, things didn't work out between Spence and Shapiro. I've never heard Gary's side of the story, but Bob subsequently told me that Spence said he just couldn't be part of an orchestra. Shapiro and I talked a while longer, then parted on amicable terms. I went away somewhat reassured. Let's see. So he's talking with different folks about whether or not he's going to take the case. He recounts the same story about Gil Garcetti meeting with some of the NAACP leaders uh, in the LA area. Let's see. 
Hmm. He talks to his pastor about all of this. He talks with his uh, with his wife. Let's see. Mm-mm-mm. The next night, O.J. Simpson called. Please, you have to go. You have to go. Uh, you have got to help me. He repeated. I need you on his case. I have nobody else to try the case. I understand you're the best trial lawyer I can get for this. I want you to come and do it. This time I answered. Well, my brother, I replied, you've got me. Bob Shapiro could read the handwriting on the wall. When we spoke the following morning, he informed me, Johnny, I've decided you're the guy we need on this team. Thank you, Bob. I replied dryly. We met shortly shortly thereafter in his rather cramped Century City office to finalize our arrangements. Uh, Let's see. Mm -mm -mm. There's one last paragraph I'll read and then we'll get to the listeners reading is more. He has lots. I mean, the next book that we're going to read, Last Man Standing, The Tragedy and Triumph of Geronimo Pratt. After all the pictures of O.J. Simpson and the win and blah, blah, blah. And we made trounced and we clowned on Marsha Clark and then the last picture, Johnny L. Cochran, Jr., Geronimo Chijaga Pratt. Also, like Mark Furman, a war, uh, Vietnam veteran. Uh, but that is the last photograph. That is our next book, man. Johnny L. Cochran Jr., a legend. Uh, so the last bit that I will read. Uh, let's see. Okay, this is on page 250. Okay. Since I had just taken up Simpson's cause that day, the defense sources alluded to did what well, let me make sure I give a little bit more. Uh, the potential significance of Ito's sensitivity to such issue. Oh, man, how much more should I? Because he does give some important tidbits about Lance Ito. Jeez, how much more should I give? Let's see. All right, we'll start here from 248. I don't like surprises in court, but I wasn't at all unhappy with Ito's uh, selection, even though his wife, Captain Peggy York, Cowbell, was LAPD's highest ranking woman, shortly to be placed in command of the department's internal affairs division. In fact, in accepting Lance Ito as our judge, we formally waived our client's right to assert any conflict of interest growing out of his wife's position. Very important for like a year down the road. At the time, no one could have anticipated the controversial role Ito's marital situation would come to occupy in the proceedings and how. Still, I knew Lance to be a highly intelligent, widely read, extraordinarily hardworking judge. He has an sense of humor and as a jurist is about as fair minded as his exclusively prosecutorial experience permits to my mind he also has another saving grace one we Californians are perhaps more conscious of than other Americans as the son of loyal Nisei who suffered inexcusable mistreatment by our government during the second world war Ito has firsthand knowledge of racism's corrosive impact on American society his conservative former deputy DA's political instincts may sometimes war with that consciousness as they did during the Simpson trials 
latter stages, but nothing can totally erase what his heart knows. The potential significance of Ito's sensitivity to such issues was clear from all the news reports filed from the courtroom that day. Without exception, they noted not only that I was an experienced trial lawyer whose clients had included Michael Jackson, but also that I was the first black attorney to join Simpson's defense team. Linda Deutsch, previously mentioned, uh, noted that noted on this my first day in court as Simpson's attorney. My presence was important because race could become an issue in the case. Understatement. A few also remarked on my close ties to Los Angeles African-American leaders and reported that I had been part of the delegation that had met with Garcetti to discuss whether or not O.J. would face the death penalty. Many also pointed out that sources among Simpson's defense lawyers already had signaled their intention to try to prove that the glove recovered at Rockingham had been planted by a white LAPD officer. Since I had just taken up Simpson's cause that day, the defense sources alluded to did not include me. In fact, the source of the information concerning the possibility of a white detective, Mark Furman, planting evidence at OJ's Rockingham home was Bob Shapiro. Earlier that week, New Yorker, Correspondent Jeffrey Tubin, a reporter for whom I have little respect and do not trust, had published a piece quoting from legal documents Furman had filed in connection with his failed attempt to obtain a disability pension from the LAPD. In those documents were reports of psychiatric examinations during which Furman had not only professed profound hostility towards blacks, Latinos, and other minorities, but had also described incidents of violence directed against non-whites. He further alleged that his racial animosity stretched back to his service in the U.S. Marine Corps before he joined the police department. Let's see, mentions a bit more about Tubin. I will stop there. Very interesting book. I'm so glad to have it. Much obliged for the uh, much obliged for the book. Yeah, he gives. A, I'll try to weave in a little bit more of uh, what he shared. Let's see. Yeah, I'll stop right there. But he gives quite a bit more detail. I'll weave that in uh, as we proceed through the book. But his accounting of how he became a part of the Simpson defense team and in particular OJ Simpson courting him and saying, I need you to be a part of this and valuing his expertise varies dramatically with what we heard from Jeffrey Tubin. And in fact, if you watch the FX series, it's the same thing. It's uh, Robert Shapiro saying, Hey, OJ, we got to have Johnny Cochran and OJ. said, what? Johnny Cochran, you gotta be kidding. I'm OJ. I'm OJ. I'm not black. I'm OJ. We can't have a little Johnny Cochran on it, which sounds very different than what Johnny Cochran just wrote in his book, in addition to Johnny Cochran. That's the second time that I just listened to the interview that Johnny Cochran did with Johnny, uh, with Charlie Rose, uh, a year after the verdict, where he says flagrantly, Jeffrey Tubin lied on me. Jeffrey Tubin said or wrote or whatever that I told someone I thought OJ Simpson was guilty and you just heard him write I have always thought he was innocent I've never told anyone anything to the contrary and he says flat out Jeffrey Tubin lied 
on me. So that is a very strong, very explicit rebuke uh, from the late grandsister, Johnny L. Cochran Jr. The number 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. We'll make sure everyone gets to share and are not left out since we got a little extra. But I thought, hey, we can include what does Johnny L. Cochran have to say about all this? That I guess I'll I'll end here. Just the caller said before they appreciated the background information that Jeffrey Tubin is providing, and I will say the one thing: when Mark Furman is the expert, when Jeffrey Tubin is the expert, when they are the ones that get to provide you the background information, you are at their mercy. That is one thing reading being more important than watching television. I didn't even start with, you know, people taking the position that OJ Simpson was innocent. I just, I've been reading all these other books today was the first time I actually got a book from somebody who said, Nope, OJ innocent. But I've been reading other people's books from just from reading other people's books. You can fill in and say, well, wait a minute. Is what Jeffrey Tubin saying? Is it true? Is he lying to me? Like reading more important then watching television, if we rely on white experts, star six one, if you have commentary to share. Much obliged for folks who nabbed items from the wish list. Uh, Irie in Louisiana, did you have commentary? Yes, yes, thank you. Um, well, um, I thought that when he said, well, hi, everybody, sorry, I'm trying to make it fast. Um, when he said that Johnny Cochran, the case was uh, meant for him and him for the case, you know, I, um, I, I found that to be true. No lies detected there. Um, and I, I um, just looking back, you know, uh, on it and then, you know, listening to the book, I, I appreciate um, Johnny Cochran being on his legal, um, a part of his legal defense because, uh, for some reason, I feel like if he wasn't there, not only because of his skill, you know, his adroitness and his, his um, you know, learned ability or whatever, um, I feel like there just needed to be um, some balance, you know, an all-white legal team, in my opinion, BGQ. Um, it just would have, to me, it, it, it would have seemed like, yeah, it's like he did it. He got all-white, you know. All white defense, yeah, he's trying to make sure he doesn't, you know, he's really trying to appeal to uh, Caucasians. Um, but I'm, I'm, I, I think it was balance, cosmic balance as well. Um, uh, and then the other thing I wanted to say was about, um, um, I found it interesting about Johnny Cochran um, uh, migrating to uh, California, like the doctor in. Uh, the warmth of warmth of other sons and and blossoming in a in a, in a big way like the doctor did in that book. Um, a little more grounded though, uh, and it was interesting to hear about his wife um, having some confusion about thinking that better education would be achieved um, with uh, their son and around white people. I, I'm a victim as well. I did that with my my son. Um, and it didn't, it turned out okay, but it didn't turn out 
as best as it could. And, um, you know, but, uh, yeah, it's, this is interesting. I mean, and then he really did need Johnny Cochran. I don't know what he said to him, but he he really did need Johnny Cochran. So I, I can't wait to hear more. And I'll mute my line. Thank you. Good night. Much obliged, Irie in Louisiana. Hope I didn't disrupt folks being able to share, including commentary from Mr. Cochran. But I thought, you know, that would be good. Other folks who have a hand up, if your line is, uh, if you have a hand up, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Uh, let's Go get ahead, ma'am. Right on. Okay, thank you for allowing me to share. Um, and this time I did take better notes. Uh, along with Irie, I did also um, draw a, a comparison between what Tubin was saying in his book about uh, Cochran Sr. with his migration from the South to uh, California. And also, just like, um, I guess on that same note, um, sorry, Tubin had kind of conflated the upbringing of Shapiro, Clark, and Cochran as if everything was equal when he said they all went to the public UCLA, if I'm not mistaken. I know he said it was the public college, but the path that Cochran had to take was very different. Um, with Clark, with her being a, a uh, descendant of Middle Eastern, or I don't know if it's considered the Middle East, but I think it was like basically um, the white people who practice Judaism, like immigration costs a lot of money. So it kind of seems like that, that will be, it's that I don't know where the, where that comes from other than him practicing racism. One of the first note, uh, notes that I took in the segment in the beginning, he said that uh, black people or black I can't I can't remember if it was black people or black jurors or just OJ they were too tender for the truth and to me tender is reminiscent of like food um so definitely thought that that was that was interesting um he had mentioned Jerry Spence I, I know the last name was Spence but it's kind of hard for me to say that I've learned something. I'm trying not to say that I'm learning something from Tubin's book because it seems like not just him, but a lot of the, not just, not sorry, not just him, but um, a lot of the people on the defense, um, Bailey and um, Cochran had said that Tubin was lying, but it seems like when he had mentioned Jerry Spence and OJ wanting him not, and, I guess over Cochran, it was a surprise to me because I've the first memory that I ever you know had of Cochran was him defending OJ, um, and then I guess I quote unquote learned about the other case with the black male who was um, trying to get his partner to the hospital because they were pregnant. I didn't know that he had the, um, defended in that case. Uh, or he was involved in that case and had lost. I did want to mention, because like I said before, I've been reading uh, Furman's book. And in this book, from the last segment, um, when Furman was 
being asked by Cuban if he had planted the glove and he was kind of not really answering the question as, as the usual white people like to do. He, um, he had not, or he was, you know, not really answering it, but in his book, he firmly denies that he didn't plant the glove. He was like, he didn't have enough time. So it really is all dependent upon time. Um, and then I think someone mentioned from the last segment about Furman um, when it came to the New Yorker article and if he was warned and per Furman's own words, he was warned about the New Yorker article and um, he prepared his family for any possible backlash. And he even talked to Marsha Clark about it and Clark basically told him not to worry about it. It shouldn't have that much of an influence on anything that's happening. But in his book, not to quote him, but it was basically like, you know, regardless of what Marsha Clark said about not worrying, he's still worried anyway. Um, That's the last thing. Thank you. Much obliged, Red in Ohio. That's what I thought. This, you know, they were not they were not uh, ignorant about Mark Furman's racist conduct. Uh, they had, a, they even had LAPD officers telling them about Mark Furman's racist conduct. So this was not a surprise. He was well, what they call tipped off, warned in advance. He got all of the notice, unjust networking and everything else. So well prepared. Uh, other folks, much obliged, read in Ohio. Other folks uh, with commentary, the mail caller who yielded. Uh, yes. Can I bear it? Henry in Chicago. Yes, sir. All right. Um, from the last uh, segment, uh, <clears throat> there was a mention of, uh, Tubin changing the name of his article, uh, because of the fact that there was another, uh, article, uh, that dealt with race. And I think I might've found that article. Uh, it's an article called one drop of blood. And uh, and it's the, it's in the same issue as uh, Tubin's article uh, about uh, the case, and it's from the New Yorker of July of uh, 24, 1994, and it it has the headline: "Do ethnic categories protect or divide us? The way the Washington chooses to define the population in the 2000 census could trigger the biggest debate over race in America since the 1960s." And in in summary, I've been skimming over this article, uh, and I actually I actually emailed to you, Gus. Uh, it was basically about uh, adding the category of multiracial uh, in the 2000 census, uh, since this was uh, an article from 1994, and uh, has a lot of interesting things in regards to you know uh, biracial children and you know. Uh, mixed marriages is what they call it in the article and, and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I thought, I thought this was a uh, pretty interesting considering, uh, you know, OJ being in a tragic relationship, uh, uh, with Nicole and, you know, producing, you know, children, uh, of such. So, um, that's all I have on me in my life. Tragic arrangements. Indeed. Much obliged for the, uh, New Yorker article. That's interesting. If their report was just about the racial categories and tragic arrangements and all the rest, why would, 
I don't know why that would preclude Tubin from being able to just title his report race card, but hmm, maybe I, I need to read the report to get a better grasp. Uh, other folks, commentary? Can I be heard? Thomas in New York. Yes, Gus, uh, for the callers. Um, I'm glad you read that piece from, um, I guess, the Johnny Cochran book, um, Nancy Ito with the White Wife. Um, and she was mentioned in the Furman tapes. Um, she was Mark Furman's boss. He talked about a conflict of interest. I'm surprised he was able to stay on that trial. Um, flirting with um, the charge of racism, uh, I thought that he made it seem like it's so appealing. You know, racism's appealing. Flirting with the charge of racism, these black people, or these white, you know, writers would dare not say certain things about black people. Um, I just thought that was an interesting metaphor. He took some shots at Johnny Cochran, I thought. Um, he said, uh, quote, Something like OJ's way out was sport, was sports, but Johnny Cochran's way up was school. Um, his way up, like he was already out, you know. Um, and I guess because he had access to white friends with pools and archery rooms and stuff. Um, but man, um, Shapiro's defense would be race. I don't recall race being used, racism being used as a defense until later in the trial, but um, I don't think these, and I think this could be an act of racism by these white lawyers. I don't think these white lawyers need a black lawyer to prove racism to a jury. That defies logic. Seems like white lawyers calling a white cop a racist would have much more validity um, than Johnny Cochran standing there, just being another complaining Negro calling a white person a racist. You know, it's, um, seems like when white people call white people racist, it seems to have a lot more weight behind it. And, um, you know, I think that that was these white lawyers way to, they, they clearly see this was all racism. Um, but they didn't want to mess up their status in the city and, you know, call out the LAPD and, you know, um, call them out as racist. So they bring in Johnny Cochran to do the dirty work for them, you know? That's what I got from it. You know, I don't think Johnny was 100. Well, I think they needed him because he was clearly a better litigator. But to prove racism, it, it seems like they could have did that without him. I'll be with my line thinking. That'll come up. Staying in the chronology, please, everyone. Much obliged. I guarantee you we have lots to go in the book, so it will all be covered. Peggy York, all of that as it comes up in the text. Other folks, uh, much obliged, Thomas in New York. Other folks who have commentary, proceed. Be yeah, everyone. May I be heard? Caller in Florida. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Um, I definitely agree with Thomas. I caught the one about the the, uh, the term flooding being used, and 
I think they use the term semi-illiterate in reference to OJ's, uh, I guess, intelligence or education and him being a former athlete. Uh, I noticed they use, it was a sentence when they were discussing or when they were um, going into Mr. Cochran's upbringing and how he supported black businesses. I think uh, black insurance businesses and the wording they used, it was a sentence that went, there were businesses that that cropped up during the term of the century. And I thought of like sharecroppers, uh, slavery. So I, I was um, uh, very intriguing language that was used. Uh, and that's something to think about as well with the focus on Mark Furman. Yeah, they said they were going to do more focusing on Mark Furman. And when it comes to racism, it's like it's it's saturated through, during this whole situation and how it's... See, because with my understanding of racism now, it's definitely way more improved than it was just a few years ago. So uh, like how you mentioned how your conclusion on uh, this case was different a while back than it is now. It's pretty much the same with me as well. Like, except for I was thinking, I don't even really know if he did it or not, or did he do it? Or now I'm thinking it's, it's impossible for him to do something like that. But I'm still in the phase of just listening and learning, and I do agree reading is more important than uh, watching television. And that's all I have to share. Thank you. FX will have you uh, convinced that OJ is for sure guilty and no good slimy Johnny Cochran and Robert Shapiro and the rest played the race card and got this no count guilty fella uh, off the hook, as they say. Uh, Let's see. The make sure I get to a few of my I thought the opening chapter to Mr. Cochran wants to know we didn't get the entire chapter nine. We just got a, a snippet. We'll pick up there to get the rest of it next Thursday. But that opening portion uh, where he says this notion of O.J. Simpson being involved in the defense. Now, again, you compare that to what you heard from Johnny Cochran's autobiography. OJ calling him nightly ritual. I need you. I need you to. ah, This is just some lie that they fabricated, manufactured uh, to say that he's some smart fella and is thinking about his defense. He doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, He gets even in more detail. He says uh, he knew many journalists would take their line about Simpson's level of involvement at face value even as it was transparently false, treating Simpson as the equal of his lawyers fit nicely with the paternalistic approach many mainstream journalists take in writing about race. According to these informal standards, white reporters can write with candor about the intellectual limitations of their fellow whites, but not blacks. Absurdly, black sensibilities are thought to be too tender, read in Ohio, for the truth. It is indeed thought to be 
flirting with the charge of racism, Thomas's metaphor, to draw attention to the intellectual limitations of any African American, especially a prominent one like Simpson. Now, I just sat here for eight years and heard them ridicule President Obama. He's dumb. The entire Obama family, they're dumb, ignorant, unqualified. How do you even get here? That boy doesn't deserve to be in the White House. That's what I heard for eight years about the president of the United States and his entire family. Cowbell. I did not see any restraint or any problem with white people in general or the media specifically in terms of uh, pointing out the intellectual failings of black people. I think the bell curve was a bestseller. We haven't read that on the book club. Maybe we should. But I just I do not see any evidence of that. It seems that frequently white people take great glee in mocking the intellectual shortcomings of black people all the time. I think one of the last acts of Supreme Court Justice Lance Ito was saying maybe we need a little nursery law school for black people because, you know, they're not too, you know, intelligent. He's not a member of the media, I guess. But, you know. Supreme Court justice. That's not just the toothless white person out in the hillside uh, and tender for sure. Uh, let's see. But and again, this book starts before you even get to the table of contents with an illiterate letter from O.J. Simpson. It's like that is a major point that he wants to convey this O.J. Simpson. Dillett did it. He's some illig- illiterate, ignorant uncouth uncouth brute it seems like that's a a, an important point uh that we've got because we're not very far into the book yet and he's already going right after this you know i'm gonna explicitly say no way he's not involved in the defense he's an idiot he doesn't know what he's doing let's see uh instead of racism being alive and well Cochran on tel- on the Today Show says this case is clearly about the Fourth Fourth Amendment and whether or not it's alive and well in Los Angeles County. How about that? Uh, let's see. Once Cochran breaking up real bad, Gus. Let's see. Am I being heard? Am I being heard? I just heard. I just heard that you said. Can you be heard? I just heard that. But you were breaking up prior. Let's see. Am I breaking up now or audio working? It's still breaking up. Hmm. One side has a sound bad. Let's see. This service. Access code accepted. There are 14 participants in the conference. Q&A session has started. The recording has started. Okay. Let's try it again. Uh, Okay. Okay. It's working. You're clear now. Grand. Sound better. Spectacular. Much obliged. Let's see. Hmm. So I was saying uh, 
Once Cochran signed into the case, the question of whether Simpson had in fact murdered his ex-wife and her friend became immaterial. That's from Tubin. That is absurd and disgraceful. I think Mr. Simpson has said the whole time, innocent, didn't do it. Cochran said the whole time, innocent, didn't do it. That is not immaterial in any way, shape, form, and even suggests that that didn't matter to the jury, which I think is totally insulting and goes right. We talked about that yesterday in the way that the mostly black, mostly black female jury will get to that. But the way that they were talked about in this sort of way, like uh, and he goes right down after that. uh, Let's see. Cochran had perfected the art of winning jury trials in downtown LA as though he was an expert with the Negro jury. Uh, let's see. Great point about, uh, the good schools are the schools with, uh, white children. Of course, uh, the integrated neighborhood of West Adams, uh, certainly warmth of other sons. We heard lots of this Dr. Robert Pershing Foster, the doctor who moved to California and did much better. Um, yeah, I guess you would see white children doing archery or what have you. I guess today it might be, they might have a drone or all kinds of, you know, strange things, uh, that, you know, you've never seen before. Uh, let's see white power. I believe Tom Bradley, this is the fella. He is known for the Bradley effect. I think he was running for governor in California and the polls had him winning. He had like a 10% lead and then he lost in the eighties. And they said they felt it was a lot of white people lying and saying that they were going to vote for good old Tom Bradley. And then they got in the booth and did not vote for him. Uh, but the Bradley effect, I think that's same person. And Let's see. We got Leonard Deadwilder. That's another great illustration of black male privilege driving your pregnant wife to the hospital and you get shot and killed. And and we get a two for dead beat black dads do anything to get away from taking care of their children. Uh, Let's see. And they made a televised spectacle of that too. necrophilia. He said they uh, they delivered the coroner's inquest to a wrapped citywide audience. And this is in 1966. Like this is no Twitter. They didn't have hashtags, uh, say his name, dead Wilder and all the rest of it. And the whole city tuned. Oh, I guess it was only one thing on television in 1966. So we'll tune in and see what happened to old dead Wilder. Um, and the family Mark Furman saying that we beat and killed the black people and they sue us. Cochran lost the family civil suit against the city. Hmm. Uh, yeah. And we'll stop. Yeah. We'll pick up, get the rest of chapter nine next week. Um, reading more important than watching television and keeping in mind, like we had F Lee Bailey on the program yesterday and he said, man, that Tubin fella not being truthful he wasn't even at the trial that's at least the second person that I've heard criticize Jeffrey Tube and say this guy wasn't even at the trial every day like he was doing other stuff and he wasn't even here Johnny Cochran flat out saying this guy is a liar I do not trust him hmm 
I'm glad we're getting all that information to keep in mind as we read early, since we have quite a bit to go as we continue reading. Uh, Wow. OJ Simpson. So grand. Uh, We'll be here tomorrow for neutralizing workplace racism, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, We'll chat, discuss uh, what's going to hopefully people will be it's so-called Christmas. So, yeah, hopefully nobody will be working and maybe folks had a little bit more time away this week. So it'll be nice, easy. We can just talk about how we avoided Christmas parties. Uh, We'll be here for Saturday. The compensatory call in we will review what's gone down this week and hopefully everybody can navigate the holidays safely. That said, much obliged. We did our overtime for the book club. I uh, hope it has been informative and worth your time and energy. Uh, this is certainly one. Hey, if you are with relatives, I guess doing it cautiously, carefully. If you are around uh, family members, ask them about this trial, especially if you have family members. I guess you could do it either way. If you have family members who are older, right? If you have either your parents aunts, uncles, grandparents, whatever it is, you could ask them about it. Cause I'm sure they remember this. <laughs> like if they didn't watch it outright, see if they think OJ is guilty or whatever, or if you have offspring, cousins, nieces, nephews, I suspect a good number of them. They probably watched that FX series. You know, if they're in their twenties or so, maybe older. Oh yeah. Sure. They watched it. Uh, the ESPN documentary made in America. Oh yeah. I'm sure a whole lot of them, they probably watched it might have an opinion on all this. See what they say. See what they think might be a great conversation piece. Uh, so many components, cowbell and courtroom drama and media and coverage of racism. Whites. It's extraordinary opportunity to police violence and Mark flipping Furman, all of the above uh, take advantage and see what they say with that sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. We need a fully functioning brain computer to decode the deception of Jeffrey Tubin at all. Uh, in addition to being sober, let us be well, I would say let's hunker down like, you know, we could talk about all the other stuff. Uh, it's holiday time and people are out. It's fisticuffs over a bar of what? Cranberry sauce. It's been that all year long, especially so now with the so-called horror day hunker down. Uh, if you got to go out, I would be very alert. Uh, if it looks like hostilities are going to break out, somebody feels like they need to brawl over the last, you know, pie shell or gift or whatever it is. We are out of here. It has been a very ugly year and you should be thinking this here fella could be armed. This white woman could be armed. This person could have a whole gang of other folks who are also armed, who are with them. I did not leave the house intending on mortal combat. I was just trying to get a bar of soap. I'll try again tomorrow. (laughs) That's to be how we should be thinking like super risk adverse for 2021. It's been way too nutty. Uh, in addition to all of that, if you do have to go out, as I said, we're being super sober, very alert, buckled up driver or passenger. If you're driving, you are not 
on the cell phone. Uh, again, we need to have our wits so we can be aware of what's happening around us. And we're just trying to minimize doing the small things that we can to eliminate contact with the Mark Furman's of the known universe being buckled up, being sober, not on the cell phone, not with a white person. Jesus, <laughs> certainly that. But I mean, just trying to do what we can to minimize contact. Jeez. With that creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in no name calling nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim Your brother you a victim i'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my condition mm -hmm. even my conditioning has been conditioned <laughs>